Uh, hey, computer, quick question. Um, how do you properly pronounce uh, the name of Amy's father? Marquis. Huh. Are, are you sure? Because uh, I've heard from, from several other people that, uh, that the name is pronounced differently. Yes. While the word is French in origin, it, like so many other things, has been co-opted by the British. Therefore, either pronunciation is technically correct. Also, if you visit the Worm audiobook website, it clearly denotes all author-confirmed pronunciations of character names and lists this particular name as Marquis. Please stop asking me this. I have many very important calculations I should be doing instead. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, thank you. I appreciate it. You're welcome. I love you. I love you, too. Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Worm, a Daily Planet Films podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss the hit web serial Worm, week by week, arc by arc. My name is Matt Freeman, an interdimensional telekinetic precog, and I'm joined as always by my co-host Scott, some nerd who I yanked away from his marathon Heroes of the Storm session and into a dimension where both heroes and storms are ready and waiting to brutally murder him and his entire family. Scott, how are you doing? Pretty fucking horrible, Matt. I was winning. Uh, my, uh... My Arthas was jungling uh, like a like a champ, and we were gonna yeah. accomplish. I, I've never played mobas. I don't know. Were you kiting? <laughs> this joke would have worked a whole lot better if I knew how to play a moba at all. <laughs> but yes, Matt, as you said, this is the podcast where you, a worm expert, guide me, a first time reader, through Wild Bo's world of superheroes, supervillains and everything in between as I inspect, interpret, and even speculate on what the story is and where it is going. This week, we are tackling Arc 17, Migration. And once again, we have a full arc's worth of interludes um, where we leave Taylor completely behind and tell the story of the Travelers. Um, and once again, Matt, this is like probably one of my favorite things in Worm so far. Yeah, um, I think I've probably reread this arc more than any other section of the story multiple times uh this and and this was indeed like the part of the story that was kind of very vaguely described to me that kind of made me want to read the story in the first place um and it's it essentially serves as an almost self-contained short story um yeah and that's that's kind of my favorite thing about it actually yeah there's so much going on here um there's so much that fills in gaps and ties back to things you already know about the travelers. Uh, there's so much that relates back to what we've been discussing for months now, but also you're right. It's this contained story, this kind of Greek tragedy for this one character and, and the thing he and his, his companions go through. Um, and it's so, it's so wonderful. Matt, I was saying before we started recording how nervous I am, like for the first time in a while, because I liked this so much and I, I'm just, I like I want to do it justice here. Like I want us to talk about it in a way that reflects just how great this is and how complex and how many different things are happening all at the same time. Because on top of this just being a really good story, it's just doing so many things simultaneously. Um, and it's oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, I, I, I know what you mean there. I mean, it's extremely intricate and I would really hate to I guess the feeling is, you know, I, I would hate to do this and then feel like, man, I, I missed the. I missed this thing that I wanted to talk about um, because it's it's quite dense. 
Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of dense, uh, let's let's get let's get into some comments yeah. and questions. That's Boom. Right. Gotcha, viewers, yes. listeners. I don't, I don't even know words anymore. <laughs> well, so first off, uh, Wildbo wants us to imagine how Taylor would have fit into the Brockton Bay wards, uh, and, he, and he specifically says. Um, um, I, I want you to talk for a minute or two on how you think it'd be, how you think Taylor would fit in, um, how that might unfold and how it might work or where she might go, given who she is and who they are. Yeah, I think this was in response to like a throwaway question, like or, or a throwaway comment I made when we said like, hey, look, the wards are competent and cool and like working together. And wouldn't it be cool if our main character was parts of these guys that seemingly just want to do good and are good guys? Um, yeah, so <laughs> I don't think Taylor it would actually fit very well into this group at all. Um, I think her natural hatred towards authority um, would mean that anytime they were given an order, I think she would work well with the, the team members themselves, um, with the exception of maybe Weld would, would rub her the wrong way. Um, but anytime they got an order from above, I don't know. I don't see Taylor like following this order um, to the letter. If it doesn't make sense to her internally, she's not going to do it. Yeah, I feel like yeah, I agree with what you just said there. I think the key would be whether she could get to a place of feeling like they were her comrades. Um, yeah, because yeah. we we've kind of expressed this thing where like she she categorizes people as like you're either a bully or you're a victim or or you're a facilitator of bullies, but um um. There, there's kind of another category that is a much, much smaller category. And so we didn't talk about it much, but I would call that like comrade. And she would kind of do anything for the people in that category. Um, I guess Rachel would definitely fall in that. And, and so, yeah. you know, and, and then, of course, I, I'm assuming in this entire discussion that Shadowstalker is is not a consideration. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Other, otherwise, it's an obvious, you know, no. Um, yeah, I think you're right there. And I think my answer to that would be that, yes, I, I think she could get to that place where she has this uh, camaraderie and general level of respect with the people that are on her level and working with her in the trenches every day. Um, uh, the problem would always be that general authority. Like I, for a while, I thought, well, maybe if she like gets to be leader of the organization. But I think even then she's just going to butt heads with the, with the director more because now she's the one directly receiving his orders and having to parse them down. And I just don't see her being OK with that. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense to me. So, yeah, moving on to the next comment, uh, just a lackey on Reddit mentions that Coyle always sees everybody as doubles all the time. Um, so, so body doubles are kind of a natural thought for him. And I thought this was a nice remark. Yeah, I like this a lot too. Um, it's, it's, it, it does get into Coyle's mindset. And, and I, I think it's funny that we were talking about doubles and, um, there's an indication that the thing that Noel does is kind of clony slash doubly, um, which is like a weird transition from what Coyle was doing. I think it's not exactly the same. It's a little different. Um, but but it is interesting that we were talking, trying to parse, like, what does doubles mean? And then we have this character that's that's coming up to be in big conflict with our cast that um, that makes copies of people. Yeah, you could view it as a as a kind of foreshadowing, I guess. Um, I don't I don't feel like I mean, it, it probably wasn't an intentional beat, yeah. but I do like I do like this feeling on on how Coyle, of course, he's going to make copies of everything because he likes he likes to have two of everything just in case. Yeah. Backups. Right. Yeah. Uh, expert eye roller points out, uh, that, 
uh, we were we were saying what does what does Taylor find attractive about Brian in the first place, and expert eye roller points out that maybe she just finds it attractive that Brian is a boy who is present in the space with her and is ready to defend her uh, from an apparent bully, uh, especially at the beginning when kind of Rachel was seemed like a bully. Brian was there to to stand up for her, and that might have been what was attractive to her. Yeah, I like this comment a lot too, and I and I think uh, this this commenter is is correct. I think that is very much part of um, the initial attraction that Taylor had for this person. Um, but it, it, I think this even kind of helps our point even more, though, because Taylor very very realistically does not need that kind of protection anymore. She does not need that kind of person doting over her and and making sure she's okay. So this initial attraction that she had, both physical and this protector nature of brian um neither of which are things that she seems to care about anymore um so it just kind of reinforces the fact that this relationship is just on this really weird level where maybe she feels a sense of obligation to him um that goes beyond i actually want to date you yeah yeah i think you're right Um, and then, so there was one comment that was, that was brought up and it was actually, a, 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 an older comment that I had, um, that I had sent you before because I thought it was a great kind of little end cap to the, to the last arc. And I wanted to just mm-hmm. read it here. Actually. Um, I think it's not too long. Um, and it's, just, it's basically about like what Coriel is experiencing as he's as he finds himself cornered and it goes he tried to escape a hundred times he grabbed for the gun and got shot he jumped and got shot he tried to talk bluff his way out and Tattletail told Taylor to shoot him he crawled and got shot he ran and got shot he tried to twist so the bullet only hit his shoulder but the second bullet got his head he ran and got shot he reached for the gun and got shot he reached for the gun and got shot he reached for the gun and got shot one time he managed to disarm Tay-Tay and got killed by Gru he ran the other way and got shot Every second he tried something new, he got killed, and he split the timeline again to try the impossible until the bitter end, and nobody knew, not even Tattletail stopped to think about it. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, and that ties into um, this feeling of of how can you, like, when I tried to sit down and think, how can you defeat Coil um, before we got into any of this? Like, how someone who always has a backup, always has a second universe they can jump into, how can you defeat him? And we we touched on this last week, that that power feels like it's really really powerful but it is kind of rather easily um defeated because once you have in this have him in this situation where i think you said it specifically that both choices are bad ones then his power basically becomes useless yeah right you just have to make him fork after the point where it's too late for him to save himself yeah 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 all right scott we got a long one today so let's move right in (laughs) all right let's do it going to be good though all right 17.1 so yeah moments ago in story time taylor executed coil and it was discovered that the boogeyman noel had left her vault so it's extremely disorienting it's 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 a narrative shock to us when we open up this arc and we're introduced to this kid we don't know francis having a mundane argument with his mom yeah you're absolutely right and this this shock carries us through basically the entire first half to three quarters of this chapter. Um, and some way all the way until we like reveal the traveler's origin, um, where they originated from. And, and the lack of stakes here is so off putting. Um, I I thought at first that maybe it was just because we're like not in Taylor's mind anymore. And, And like you've said many times before, and like other people have said that Taylor's mind is so intense that anytime you get out of it, it just feels calmer. Um, but, but no, this is something else entirely. This is, 
um, this is just this normal everyday teenager argument with their mom. Um, and it, it feels so off putting. Like I read it multiple times to try to like figure out why this felt so weird to me. Um, and of course we, we learn exactly why. Yeah. What's funny about that is even though the stakes are so low, you, you actually start to care fairly quickly about, about these mundane teenager problems, or at least I did. Yeah, no, a- absolutely. And, um, I think it's, it's, it's a testament to the writing that we don't know who Francis is at this point. Um, but yeah, we care about his problems. We, yeah. we want to, when you're ever, you're in the point of view of a character, um, you, you want to, you, you want to see them succeed. It is very yeah. interesting how, um, the fact that the interludes are never in first person. This is, I mean, we're seeing everything from Francis's perspective, but it's not I, this, I, that it's, it's a third person type omniscient thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that adds a little something to it. Um, I think maybe you can, uh, trust the narrator a little bit more in these sections than you can when you're listening to Taylor. Yeah. Yeah. Possibly. So, I mean, um, they definitely have a different brand of self-deception, I guess you could say. Yeah. I think that's fair too. Yeah. So what's happening in this scene is Francis is trying to leave in the middle of the holidays. He's dragging a suitcase full of something, we don't know what, and he's trying to do something that he considers very important, but which his mom obviously disregards. Yeah, and I kind of, I don't even know if I was supposed to, but I kind of picked up on, hey, he's got a computer in there and he's going to go do some (laughs) nerdy land party thing. Um, And I'm assuming that many people reading this book are, in fact, nerds uh, like I am and have at some point have had this almost exact same conversation with their parents um because i definitely have i've definitely carted my big giant tower pc into a car to go over to a friend's house and and play video games so i mean we weren't competing or anything so my argument was worse um but yeah this this felt very familiar to me and that that feeling of of familiarity i think is going to continue throughout this arc for me because there's a lot of things in kraus that i see in myself um and that i think helps elevate the text for me yeah yeah me too um we'll definitely get into that uh and and that's a that's a tricky territory my goodness yeah um yeah okay so yeah so so francis uh dissembles to his mom speaks vaguely uh and his mom repeatedly challenges his statements and you have to wonder from there back and forth did his mom kind of make him into this person who he is or is he is this just who he is yeah considering this arc is all about cause and effect uh, action reaction i don't think it's too much of a stretch to recognize this as an effect of of his mother's particular style of parenting um even though we do have this very limited amount of info we we don't see his mother very much but yeah it seems like she's almost toying with him in these conversations um that that made me think that yeah maybe this is this is learned behavior yeah right i think it could go either way but it's it's an interesting little little mark that he has this combative relationship even with his mom yeah so uh, in the middle of their conversation, we get the first names that we recognize, Jess, Cody, and Luke. Um, and I really don't remember which, if any, of these names we had heard before. I feel like we've heard Jess offhandedly. Like, Jess jumped out at me immediately. That's the moment where I said, oh, shit, is this is the Traveler's backstory? Is this their origin? This is what we're doing? Um, so I, I'm pretty sure we've heard her name. But uh, Cody, I don't think so ever. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, and there's this this moment, you know, where they're, they're arguing and you're, you're kind of beginning to glimpse what it is that they're talking about. And uh, his mom says it's dangerous to mix business and friendship. And and uh, Francis responds, I'm being careful. 
Yeah, and there's your alternate title for the arc. Uh, it's dangerous to mix business and friendship. Um, and I think that's a nice little summation of um, every single like point of internal conflict between our team that we're going to see with the travelers in this arc um, that they've attempted to do this. And, and that's kind of the, the focal point of our tragic hero in, in Francis Krauss here um, that he, he, in an effort to um, win someone over, he mixed business and friendship and it ends pretty badly. Yep. Yep. And, and the, the details of that, we'll see how uh, this is a good lesson on how not to do it. Yeah. So, so he marches through the cold from his house and he drags his luggage onto a city bus. And as he inconveniences everyone on the bus with his massive baggage, he thinks a part of him thrived on being annoying. He'd like to think it nourished him. Um, and, and he's also like extremely smug because he finished his Christmas shopping in September, which is just sort of silly. It's um, insane. And, and, and basically he just thinks he's better than everyone. And he's a smug, self-righteous little shit, uh, just like every teenager. Uh, and I like him already. <laughs> I remember when you told me on Twitter that uh, he was your spirit animal. And I was like, of course, like, <laughs> why didn't I see that before? But no, I, I agree with you here. He's he's unapologetic, unapologetically smug. He's very self-righteous. And uh, he he uses that to his advantage uh, to influence people, maybe subconsciously. We're going to talk about that a lot throughout this arc. Um, but he's some some kind of uh, what's the word, Matt? Um, trickster. Mm-hmm. I think yeah, maybe. That, I think that works. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> see if it sticks. Yeah, it, it's it's a it's it's weird to admit to identifying so much with a character who is so flawed, especially when it's the flaws that you identify with. But uh, uh, I think. Uh, but I it's think it's that, honest. Everybody has flaws, and I think yeah, the, there is there is so much uh, nerdy, insecure teenager inside Francis that that I think a lot of people reading the story identify with. Um, yeah. And I think I think Wildbo's ability to capture that is pretty commendable. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, it takes a lot of, I guess, courage on a certain level to to write a to write a character that's kind of I don't know, I'm making some assumptions here, but so uh, so uh, honest, I guess. Yeah. 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 So Francis eventually gets off the bus and heads to the meeting place and he sees the object of his heart's desire, a girl who he description tenderly romances. <laughs> Uh, the, the naked yearning and intensity that we understand is inside him doesn't break through the surface at all. Yeah, it's this really it's this really great moment. Um, like it's almost cinematic in a way where you can see like the people crowd and like Noel's like backlit. So she's like glowing yeah. almost slow motion. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and I like how he said description tenderly romances because this is in a very stark contrast to Taylor's description fucking that he did that that she does uh-huh. she tends to describe muscle um like tone and how he's and how like people yeah. are cut and right. there's there's nothing really like overtly sexual here it's just like obsession um mm-hmm. and and like we said this is something like that's really kind of relatable um i was a nerdy 16 year old kid and i had girls that I was just like, this girl is the perfect girl. Um, I look at her and just see beauty in every little thing. Like, I think he describes like snowflakes on her eyelashes or something. And Mm -hmm. geez, that's, it feels, it feels familiar. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, totally. So yeah, he, he greets her as uh, captain Noel. And this is the first we hear her name. Um, And she responds, people are going to stare foreshadowingly. (laughs) <laughs> yes uh yes they will 
So yeah, the conversations throughout this whole arc are so complex uh, because th there are so many layers. And Scott, tell me if I've missed any layers here, but there's there's always the subject matter at hand in the conversation, plus the undercurrents of what's happening between the characters, which are always complex. And then there's the fact that we know where all this is going, like because this is essentially a flash. This is this is all like a prequel, right? This is all a this is all backstory. So we we know where all these characters end up, and we know that it's bad. Um, so in this scene on like the object level, Noel and, and Francis are obliquely discussing the difficult confrontation ahead regarding their esports team, while under the surface, Francis is trying to probe the status of their relationship um, in, in all his subtle and not so subtle ways. Mm -hmm. And then and then she says, I like you, Kraus, um, which is the first time we hear Kraus, the name Kraus, which is how people refer to him. Um, which to me directly reflects the first time in the story that we heard this name, which was Noel screaming, you did this to me, Kraus. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that you pulled this out. And and I agree so much. And like pop culture is kind of obsessed with like prequels and origin stories. And I feel like they're so overused. Um, like I, I, I always like kind of think that if the prequel was the most interesting part of the story, then it would just be the story um and, and like i find these kind of flashback pre prequel type stories usually not very good like matt i i didn't like rogue one like i couldn't believe <gasps> that every <laughs> have you even seen that movie no <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah like I, like i just didn't I, everyone loved it and i just didn't care for it it just felt like to me like so much as like see how all this happened and i was like i don't care but but all that to be said here i think it shows the the power of prequels the power of origin stories and, and what they can do not only to tell an interesting story on their own but to enhance things that you know about your characters in the future um how how you can attach those double meanings onto every single word that people say how things reflect not just on our protagonist taylor but also on all these other characters that we know about um, and, and we know their endpoint. We know what's going to happen to them, like you said, but we don't know how they get there. And, and so we're kind of listening to these conversations and hanging on these words and attaching this forward meeting to it that we wouldn't be able to do if it wasn't being told uh, in reverse, kind of. Um, and I, it, it's it's great. And if all prequels, if all origin story type things were done like this, then I would probably like them more. Yeah, right. I mean, this is almost only only incidentally a prequel and it stands by itself as a short story. And then on top of that, you you're, you're like you've wanted it helps that you've wanted to know what was going on at the Travelers for 16 arcs yeah, so far. Yeah. Um, un unlike, you know, not really caring what happened, you know, how Darth Vader became evil or whatever. You're, you're I, don't, like, you're, I don't give a shit how the plans got onto the stupid ship. Yeah. I don't care. <laughs> right. I don't care. Yeah. Um, so, so you, you, yeah, this, the, the correct choices were made on, on every level here. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, and in speaking particularly to this scene again, instead of going at the 10,000 foot level that I tend to, but, um, I, I like how carefully like Krauss is, is choosing his words here. Like he's, he's in this kind of battle. He feels almost that he's like, he doesn't want to come off too needy and he doesn't, He's trying to like convince himself that Noel likes him, but without scaring um, them away. And, and this kind of, to me, reflects like how people treat Noel in the present time, where they like 
have like safety gloves on and stuff and they're like very careful not to set her off and how to choose their words and how to talk to her in a specific way that doesn't cause her to go nuts um and it, like there's there's a lot of parallel here yeah that's really interesting that's an interesting parallel i, I didn't i didn't catch that necessarily but it, it is you know kraus is always um like 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 you said he's he's kind of slithering around verbally trying to figure out the optimal way of saying something um to kind of get get his target to to go along with what he wants and yeah, uh, that yeah. was that was true before and it's and it continues to be true with noel and you know we we see we see him like tell tattletale to lie to her later you know and that's perfectly consistent with his behavior yeah 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 so so francis kraus trickster as we come to know him uh tenderly tries to warm Noel's hands and then his other friends appear and we, we see Marissa who appears angelic Luke who's grungy and Jess who looks shaggy navigating the wheelchair, uh, her wheelchair through the crowded cafe. And so Scott, I admit uh, I was really slow to piece together who was who the first time I read this, I think I probably pegged trickster Noel and Genesis right away, but uh, it took me a really long time to pin down the other two of them yeah and i think this is what my slow methodical podcast reading does matt because i i got it immediately i was like uh this person's this one and like i was like i got it i know them all um and then of course we introduced some new characters later that kind of throw that for a loop and made me kind of doubt it for a second but now i was pretty sure that we're meeting our core five here um and and i was as spot on yeah, yeah, I was definitely thrown, thrown for a loop, a loop later. Yeah. So this conversation they're having continues um, uh, regarding the, the imminent conflict. So it turns out they're going to have to kick somebody named Cody off of some kind of team, uh, and Kraus is going to replace him, because basically because Kraus will be an asset, whereas Cody is dead weight, and they're all sure that this is the only path forward uh, to fame and success for the rest of them. Yeah, and it's so weird in this arc where we're going to have a giant flying endbringer uh interdimensional travel um death uh crazy decisions and stuff that the inciting incident of this whole thing is we have to kick one of our friends off of our video game team and right. it, and and i think that goes to enforce this weird lower level stakes that there are and, and how we're along for them although and, and like this this is our inciting incident and and i, I want to keep hammering home cause and effect every time we see it here because it's important it's important to like the arc thematically it's important to what the simmer represents it's important to all of this um and this is our first real indication of this these are our characters making a choice that's going to have a consequence and i think the most important part here is that that kraus uh intervenes in this decision he's here for some reason um he knows he should be staying out of the conversation uh, i think he someone even says that like he, a bit later that he didn't say anything, which is not true, but he kind of pushes people towards the way he wants, even in this moment where he probably should not be. Right. Yeah. I mean, if, if you were making a bare bones synopsis of this arc, you you couldn't leave this out, even though it's very low stakes relative to everything else. Because like you said, if if it weren't for the fact that they kicked Cody off their team, uh, the the stage would not be set for the level of of conflict and animosity that we see later. Yeah, and and, and I think even the, the the most telling thing to me as how much as far as how much Krauss has kind of wormed his way into this situation is that they're allowing him to be there when they're deciding this. Like 
it, it just like it doesn't make sense to me. Like if you're going to make this decision, the four of you go off and vote and then come back and tell each of them what happened. And it just it's just so crazy to me that they would let him be there during this these deliberations. And I think it shows that like this was almost a foregone conclusion and he was so confident in it. Like he's there. He's already yeah. a member of the team before they even voted him on the team. Right. And I mean, the other thing it emphasizes to me is like, this is such, this is so exactly how it would go for, for teenagers, because, you know, I think, I think as adults, everyone kind of like, if, if, I were, if we were to be in this situation with, with adults, there would be a sense of like how things should be done to, to, you know, support a certain appearance of propriety and so forth. But, but teenagers yeah. are just going to be like, well, Krause is my friend. So of course he can sit here. And I mean, we'll, we'll get into that, I think in a bit, but like, man, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I've like made some enemies when I was a teenager through choices that at the time I was just like, well, this is, this just makes sense. This is, it's just a sensible choice. And, oh, yeah. and it's like, yeah, that's, you're just really dumb when you're a teenager because you, <laughs> you lack the context for like, no, actually, if you put yourself in the other person's position, you'd be really pissed off about this, but you didn't bother to do that because you didn't think to. So, yeah, absolutely. And and I think that's, that's one of the most surprising things to all this to me is, is how teenagery they feel. Um, and that's compared to Taylor who is, is living in this literal almost nightmare world compared to what these people live in. Um, and, and like, we're like, the, she has to act more adult. She has to be willing to make these choices because she does, she doesn't get this kind of childhood that they get. Yeah, right. Um, I like this beat from Luke uh, where he's saying uh, Krauss was saying that Cody and Marissa are type A personalities. He's not wrong. Marissa's who she is because of the mega bitch. Uh, Marissa frowned, but she didn't argue the point. And Cody is who he is because he can't stand to lose. So how's he going to react if he finds out he's been bumped for Krauss? So so Luke, this guy who like we see later, people kind of peg him as like a like a jock. He actually identifies Marissa's, uh, Marissa's like pathology and, and connects it to her motivations, and he understands how much of a pain in the ass Cody is going to be immediately. Um, he's very, very savvy in this way, and I think this guy would make a pretty decent cape. Yeah, yeah, I wonder if that'll happen. <laughs> um, I, I really like that this is almost an acknowledgement that they are completely aware of that the effect of the choice they're going to make is going to be bad. Um, like and you almost like you, as much as we've been like railing them for this choice and and like calling out their youngness here like you almost feel bad for them like i don't envy their position like if you're really trying to make a career out of this thing you're doing you have to do what's best for the team but you're hurting your friend it's almost if matt like mixing business and friendship is bad hmm. <laughs> i don't know where did where did that where did that come from <laughs> yeah so yeah, so they grab coffee and donuts, and they head to Luke's apartment. Krauss and Jess hang back and let the others just break the news to Cody. Um, and since since we know Jess from the future, I like this beat from Jess where she says, you must be nervous. Never, he smirked. See, I have you figured out. You have a tell when you're lying. Sure. The more overconfident you act, the more nervous you are. And when you're feeling down, you poke at people, provoke them. I think you get some validation out of it. Like if you can test people and they're still your friends after you can feel confident in that friendship. Uh, so yeah, Jess, Jess does pay attention and, and she does have a good read on him. And I'm pretty sure this is correct actually. Yeah, I think it absolutely is. And and I adore Jess. Like I, I really do. Like even when we knew her as just Genesis 
um, like she's this really interesting character and she seems like legitimately kind and he, she understands Krauss in, in some fundamental way, funda- fundamental way and just wants them like to all be best friends. Um, and again here, Matt, her summation of Krauss kind of rings true for me <laughs> um, personally. Um, yeah. I think Krauss is, is more active. So like I would never like actively like test someone but i will passive aggressively test people to see Mm -hmm. how they react to determine uh how they feel about a friendship or relationship this is something i've done my entire life i'm fully aware it's terrible but it's it's something (laughs) i do and again here i was like geez are you talking about me jess it's it's really kind of crazy um but matt like there's something and i'm just noticing now this now i didn't even write this down as we're going through it that everyone in this team is really good at reading other members of this team but it's only like certain ones of them like jess mm-hmm. really has kraus pegged luke uh really has uh cody and marissa pegged and i think i think kraus thinks he has noel i don't think he does but kraus kind of has marissa pegged on, on a certain level as well and it's like not everyone understands everyone but some people understand other people and i think it shows like how this cohesion isn't perfect because like we only some people understand others and and it's just really interesting that like they never seem as much of a team as they are they never seem like a fully like everyone gets everyone we all know we're all on the same page we're all good um it's interesting it reminds me a lot of my high school group of friends honestly because <laughs> like like the, there are the people who there are the people in the group who are, who are actually your friends and then there are the people who are their friends and and it and it gets kind of complicated. We we haven't even got to Cody yet, but like yeah. Kraus just kind of thinks that Cody is garbage. But as we're gonna see, like Cody's in a horrible situation here. And it like yeah. if you were to extend in the slightest amount of empathy, um not 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 that he doesn't act like a jerk, but like considering the situation he's in, it's quite understandable if you're willing to extend him that empathy. But Kraus is absolutely not willing to. So Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, let's let's do it. I mean, Cody's fascinating to talk about. We'll we'll get there. Yeah, oh, we'll do it. We're going to do a lot of Cody. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I guess just like I was saying, um, I've I've definitely entertained the thought experiment of uh, migration arc applied to my high school friend group. Yeah, I, I saw this note you had here and I got to thinking about it with my friends, some of which, uh, you know, <laughs> and yeah. and yeah, I think that would be very interesting. Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, so, so the, the thing I wanted to bring up here was that we also get, as they're, like, talking about each other's relationships and they're going through this whole um, who likes who and, and why why do I like this person over this person that Krauss is doing, um, we get this first indication that uh, there's something wrong with Noel that some people know about. Marissa clearly knows it. Uh, Kraus is aware of it, but never really verbalizes it. And we're going to see, we're going to see this beat hit again and again throughout the arc. And we never truly discover exactly what it is. Um, but Scott has a pretty good idea. Yeah. Scott, <laughs> Scott thinks he detected some things. We'll see. <laughs> so yeah, as soon as Jess and Kraus make it to the room, they hear Cody shouting, uh, they head to the room and we meet Chris and Oliver. Uh, we know Oliver as the notoriously useless Cape Oliver. Uh, and we don't know Chris at all. Um, and I'm let's see, I'm pretty sure that Chris was supposed to be a red herring for ballistic. Um, but 
uh, it's probable that I just thought so because I'm dense because he's not actually Krauss's friend and we know that Krauss and Ballistic were friends. So, yeah, I, I can see you thinking that. I, I think the reason why, again, I, I didn't was just that we have this dynamic where the five real central members of the team uh, are all together at this diner. And it felt like these are our five. We know these guys like we, we've seen Oliver like once or twice before. We haven't really interacted with him barely any these are these are our five these are the ones we know um and i just i just felt like these people gathered it's going to be like all the members of the travelers we know we're going to be members of these five so chris just like i was just like oh who's this guy <laughs> yeah right <clears throat> yeah so cody is really pissed and at this point like i think it's completely understandable um at this point in the story, especially, I don't think anybody reading this part thinks that Cody is being unreasonable. I, I sure didn't, because Krauss like is obviously a bit of a snake, and it is a really shitty thing to do to somebody to to kick them off of your like school club that you're and you're all friends. Um, and and yeah, like we were saying before, like I think with the wisdom of age, we can say that Cody's friendships with the other team members would have never recovered from this betrayal. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really the part that they didn't really think through. I mean, they said, yeah, we'd hurt our friend, but they didn't ever think this will end our friendship. Like, yeah, right. like if you called me up tomorrow and said, Scott, you can't be on We've Got Worm anymore. Um, I don't think we'd be friends, Matt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my dude. I mean, like that's you, you can't you can't do things like that to people. And and I think like the only way you learn that lesson is by is by damaging some friendships horribly when you're in high school, unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and realizing like, oh, people won't trust me if I stab them in the back. I shouldn't yep. do that anymore. Yeah, probably should yeah. not do that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, given the choice, Cody Ultimate chooses to stay uh, rather than leave so that he can watch Kraus fail. Um, uh, that is to say, rather than punch Kraus and be ejected, he chooses to stay and watch Kraus fail. Yeah, and here's another big instance of cause and effect. Um, it's hard to say how things on Earth Bet would have changed uh, without Cody coming along, because presumably if he had left the apartment, he would never have been teleported and he would not have been a presence at all. Um, so it's, it's, it's not clear exactly what would have changed, but it's safe to say things would have been very different. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so as they start setting up their computers for the Ransack tournament, which is the name of the game, we find out, Kraus gives a computer to Noelle as a gift, and she hugs him in return, um, which is apparently quite a big thing between the two of them. Uh, and then she begins to walk them through the strategy for the upcoming game. Yeah, if I, if I can take a quick second here to to run off into the whole nice guy cliche. I, sure. I don't think Kraus perfectly falls into this cliche but it's he doesn't fit the mold perfectly i think he uh he doesn't lash out in ways that the nice guy would the nice guy quote unquote would but uh this giving of a gift as like a way to keep her around and keep her liking him um is very nice guy e yeah um i think i think one thing we can say about kraus and it's going to come up over and over is that his his manipulativeness is not calculated actually yeah it's more yeah. of a self-protective reflex of 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 insecurity causing him to sort of try to paper over things and, and mend them in, in a in a quick and reactive way in response to like what he perceives to be threats um like the threat of losing noel he's gonna he, he's kind of reacting to protect that he's not 
scheming yeah. and that and that may or may not you like you may or may not consider that to be redemptive at all um it's it's clearly a character flaw it's just a matter of like how it's it, it's it's the difference between being an evil manipulative person and being a flawed person i think i, I think you're absolutely right and i think i, I want to be careful not to be too too mean to him <laughs> throughout this this entire arc because he does make some bad choices and he he does he does have serious flaws that result in a lot of bad things but yeah he um he there's this big disconnect between how he sees himself when he when you hear kind of his internal thoughts describing a situation or describing himself and how other people describe him and i think we're going to get into that a lot we see people refer to him as tricky as as like sly as like deceitful and it it's always seen through other people describing him it's never seen through him describing himself yeah no you're totally right um he doesn't see himself that way so yeah, he's he's describing um, his approach to the game, and he says, "I've been practicing with an illusion subtlety assassin hybrid class." Illusion sucks, Cody muttered. And a three-way hybrid, you're spreading your points too thin. Yeah, so Matt, I know this might be a, a bit of a stretch, but I think the whole Cody Kraus dynamic throughout the rest of this arc, the rest of their conflict, is pretty nicely summed up in this little tiny interaction between them um, on the strategy element of this game. Cody is a very simplistic straight suitor shooter. He is focused on what he wants. Uh, he's a hard worker. He hates losing, but he thinks Kraus is spreading his points too thin, but Kraus is more strategic. Uh, he looks towards the end game. His whole strategy involves, um, like picking people off and being annoying, but trusting his teammates to be able to take care of themselves until the end game where he can come in and use his strategy to, to win the game. And that's very different. That's the two of them very different. And I think the clever part of that to me is the fact that trickster strategy requires him to trust his teammates to, to, to go off on their own and do their own thing. Uh, so he just seems generally like a better team player than than Cody does. Um, and there's a lot here. And I think we're going to kind of hit these points as they butt heads throughout the, the rest of the arc. But it's really cool that how it's all kind of laid right here with this. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think Trickster is a support class and, and that's that's the way Krauss thinks. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so suddenly while they're starting up the game, uh, the building shutters and the power dies. Shit, the tournament, Luke says, uh, underestimating his predicament severely. Uh, <laughs> the, the building topples over, and Kraus has a relatively lucky fall, not really injuring himself. But Noah, Noah falls very badly, and then a number of computers fall onto her. Um, and at this point, Kraus hears someone screaming, uh, and the scream persists even when he covers his ears. So he, he goes down to where Noel is. He makes his way down and finds Noel badly injured and, and unconscious and bleeding. Um, they find that Chris is dead. His head was crushed by a bookshelf. And everyone else has suffered relatively minor injuries. Well, that's why we don't know who Chris is. Yep. Um, no, but the tonal shift works so well here. Um, because we've been playing in this false world, almost literally, um, where the biggest things these kids have to worry about is our friends being mad at us for losing in a video game tournament and suddenly without warning we're pulled again literally into the world of worm as we've seen it again um like with these high stakes with death injury horror uh we're back we we took a half a chapter off matt but we're, we're back hooray yep. 
yep, it's going to pull us back in. So, so they all decide um, to go out the window and to climb down the face of the building. And this is, in fact, Trickster's first call, I suppose, um, as the as the leader, maybe, uh, with Noel down. Uh, and it's not a great one, really, because relatively soon, Luke is going to slice his leg open um, going down the face of the building. Yeah, it's very interesting because he takes he does he takes control almost immediately and he starts ordering them around and and yeah there's a consequence of of what he told them to do and it's and it is kind of a minor one and arguably like not directly his fault like it's not like he pushed over luke or anything it's just on their way of getting down he got hurt um but it is something that you feel like he will be blamed for and i think that that trend continues throughout the arc as well that that he makes these decisions and things happen some of them directly related to his decisions some of them indirectly related but that he it everything gets gets heaped on him yeah i mean it, it, what's interesting is everyone else is kind of too distracted by by their own various problems like seeing their best friend be crushed by a bookshelf or being badly injured that he's the only person who is in like the mental state to even be making calls period yeah um, and that's why he falls into that role. And it's almost like this has all been set up ahead of time, like a Rube Goldberg machine. Yeah, almost as if. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so at a certain point, they all realize that the keening sound in their heads uh, is, is in fact, in their heads and not coming in through their ears. Uh, and then a shape appears, a 15-foot-tall alabaster woman wreathed in myriad wings. Her eyes are gray, cold, and inhuman. And Jess identifies the creature, the Seamurg. But why is she here? Jess asks. Well, I, I gotta say, Matt, uh, I was imagining the simmer as kind of like a snake thingy that flies through the air. Um, and this was not it. But like like usual, Wild Bow's things are way cooler than I ever could imagine. This is really cool. I like this design a lot. Me too. And like, it's so funny. Like, I'm going to call attention to these, but like, there's so many clever hints thrown throughout this arc. Like the why is she here bit, um, it, it works. Like it, it mm -hmm. it's a clue, but it also works in the moment. Like it jumps out at you, but not too much. Like yeah. it's very, it's very, it's very easy to see this and say, someone's like, oh God, why is an Endbringer here? What's happening? And that not just be something anyone would say, but it's a, it's a one clue towards our mystery that gets solved. Yeah, right. And there's a huge difference between. Uh... Why is she here? And why is she here? You know, yeah, um, which uh, you don't necessarily detect the first time through, although you may. I, um, I did yeah. not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So that was a long chapter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's important, though. It's, it's the introduction chapter, which sets up essentially all the billiard balls um, for what's to come. So let's move into 17.2. Um, the, the group makes their way down the slick hazardous face of the building as quickly as possible while Scion dukes it out with the Seamurg near them. Yeah, I just wanted to point out here that like four pages ago, we were arguing video game strategies. And now we're like witnessing two super powered things fly around and punch and shoot lasers at each other. Like, I, I know again, that it's played as a reveal. And then we learn that the travelers have literally moved dimensions, but this this tonal shift is like so big that it's a wonder we didn't like catch it, like realize this immediately. That was like, this is such a big change that we're not even on the same planet anymore. 
Right. Yeah. How could you care about that stuff when this stuff is going yeah, on? Yeah. Yeah. So Luke at this point cuts his leg open um, and Krauss takes over carrying Noel. Krauss is calling all the shots now. Um, he reasons that Marissa will be the most sure-footed as a trained dancer. So he tells her to take the lead. Uh, I think that's the little uh, trickster's toolbox we're seeing maybe. Yeah, sure. And I don't think this is the first time we're going to make a Taylor comparison here. Um, but this is this is an apt one. He might not be the official leader of the travelers yet, but as soon as shit hits the fan, like we said, he takes over. Um, and and like you said, like I originally wrote here, like that he feels like he's the best one to make these decisions. But as I went through it again, it 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 doesn't seem like it's actually conscious. Like you said, it's just that he's just doing it. No one else is even thinking about it. He's just doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's I think that's really really important to the events that that happen yeah right and, and that definitely also kind of sounds like taylor where she can't stop herself from uh right, taking charge right. yeah 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 so the seamurg um eventually uh emerges from a crater where she was hiding and kraus realizes that she had created a telekinetic illusion of herself to lure scion away uh we're starting to get a sense of what this inbringer can do and then she starts telekinetically constructing something elaborate out of scavenged electronics yeah, and and God, we're gonna learn so much more about what the Seamurg does throughout the arc. We learn it in little bits and pieces, um, and I'm still not sure I have like a full grasp on everything she's capable of. But I do know what she represents to us narratively, and Matt, I love it. Um, we'll talk about that later as we learn yeah. it. But I, it's so great. Yep. Yep. So as they're approaching street level or getting a better look at things, Kraus notices the absence of other people. Relatively little time has passed since he was outside, but nobody's around at all. Uh, finally, a couple of flying heroes do arrive, but one is killed immediately by a telekinetic debris, and the other is held at bay easily while the simmer continues to work. Yeah, with just more hints and indications that something else is going on besides just what we're seeing. Um, and like we said, these minor beats are very, very cleverly masked. Um, it's not as if we're intentionally hiding something from the characters or the readers. It's, it's there. It's just hidden behind a little bit of rubble. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So again, uh, Krauss makes a call that they'll descend down through the building rather than try to climb down the torn up, uh, surface of the building. So as they make their way down through the building, Krauss asks Jess what she knows about the Simurg because Jess is their resident cape nerd. Um, Jess starts to tell them the story of her first appearance when people still thought she might be a force for good like Scion. She appeared in Switzerland and stayed in place peacefully for three days. And then suddenly everybody who had interacted with her, well, we'll find out later. (laughs) Thanks Jess for holding on to that reveal. (laughs) Um, it's, it's really good though. Yeah. So Krauss chooses this moment to remember that Cody was one of the boys who had approached Noel and that he'd been rejected. Oh, really, Matt? Does he does he choose this moment or is this moment chosen for him? Yeah, I think it's fair to say this is the maybe the first like explicit moment where he's having like intrusive thoughts that are that are setting things up for him. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Although he doesn't realize it yet and he'll, he'll kind of come to and then he becomes more alert, but it's already working on him. Yeah, yeah. So the kids finally make their way out of the building just in time to see the Seymour cleverly circumvent the power of the shield generating cape grandiose and then brutally impale him on a tangle of rebar. Jesus fuck. <laughs> and then we get our familiar uh, grandiose down ZD six uh, as the man tries to argue with dragon that he's not down 
Uh, and then she just blows him up remotely. <laughs> Matt, you're playing <laughs> video games. What happened to the video games? I know this like this little segment here is such an effective like gut punch of of like, oh, God, oh, my God, this is horrible. Because um, like uh, just the, the moment where, where he's like, is there any message? Uh, Dragon's like, is there any message you would like me to pass on to your wife and, and child? <laughs> and he's like, fuck you, dragon. And she's like, OK. <laughs> Uh, um yeah so the kids run um alexandria shows up um but even she can't seem to harm the sumerg who appears to see the attacks before they happen and sort of counter them kraus understands and voices the understanding that grandiose was killed because he stayed in the area too long yeah and, and the classic way of uh ramping up tension in any situation is to add a ticking clock to it and now this scene has like 12 of them yep so we get the image uh, as they're running of this giant wheel the Simurgh has built, powered up now and floating, surrounded by a hurricane of flying debris as the heroes close in. Simurgh finishes it, and then the 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 wheel, which is now a portal, begins to spray architecture and living things out across the city. And one such object, a monster, lands near the running kids. And uh, this this thing has bark-like skin, claws, and jagged teeth. And another, a hulk of a man, breaks his body when he lands nearby. And the first monster just starts eating him immediately. Something nearby screeches, and all the kids promptly throw up. Yeah, seems like there are some uh, Case 53s here, huh? So yeah. It seems like it. Yeah, so so Scott, I was trying to be coy here and and <laughs> and use the word monster every time because like that's that's kind of a, a more so so for one thing like I, I, the first time I was reading this I was really not sure if these were case fifty threes or if these were like something else from somewhere else like you don't you don't know, like you're never told that they're case fifty threes I'm I think it's I think it's a safe bet due to the number of clues we end up getting yeah but they act a lot like especially this first one we get where it just like starts eating somebody um seems just more it's just like a, a monster it's just like a horror monster yeah i went back and forth and it wasn't really until they found the the vile box mm -hmm. that i said okay so the dimension that she opened up to was clearly cauldron's base dimension and threw a bunch of shit including all these case 53s that they've been keeping so i think it's funny we we have this indication that cauldron is releasing case 53s but maybe um a lot of it was not so much releasing and a lot of them were part of this initial uh, huge uh, breakout almost as the simmer pulled them all here um yeah they, they act very different and and it's it, i think it is supposed to kind of mask um what they exactly are because like these are very different from the ones that we've seen. Um, but also you have to think that these are people that have been had their memories erased and been probably caged for who knows how long. So uh, they're, yeah. they're probably going to be a little just crazy. Right. Yeah, totally. So Scion then returns, uh, having returned from the, the decoy and destroys Simurg's machine and then kind of knocks her down. Yeah. Kraus tries to prompt Luke to figure out where they are in the city, but he's completely lost and he's also distracted by the singing. Um, there's there's this this section where they come across this this man with giant head and and a tiny torso and withered arms, and his his head is like shattered from the impact, and he's like help me, and and Marissa approaches him and is like how and and he and the the, the thing says give me your memories give them i want to dream again i haven't dreamed in so long <laughs> um i'm pretty sure that 
like every hair on my body stood up the first time I read that and probably every subsequent time. I just love that. Part. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think this ties into the confusion that you were talking about where I was really confused here where they seem like case 53s um, and there are hints that they've been in confinement for a long time. I really like the beat here where he specifically says that the arms and legs of this thing had atrophied almost as if it's been chained up or, or locked up for so long. It hasn't used its limbs. Um, and, and then you learn as we go through that, that this, the Seamurg invaded Cauldron headquarters and, and it kind of shifts you back to just feeling sorry for these poor people and thinking that this was the life that Alexandria uh, gave them when she offered them a choice without, without telling them what the, the choice was. Yeah. Right. You're getting it to live until we, until you get shot out of the portal <laughs> and splatter in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> Nobody wants to get splattered in Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> So, yeah, so they, they they hear something howling behind them. And uh, even as the Seamurg song seems to fall away uh, just in time to run into a chain link fence and a warning that they'll be shot if they approach. Yeah. And I think this is the first time we see the travelers in this situation where they are alone. Um, everyone like everything around them wants to kill them. Nothing is friendly to them. They are on their own here. And it's God, it's depressing and like. It just we're on chapter two, Matt. They're playing video games a chapter ago. I know. And and now we're moving on to, to chapter three. So, yeah, the group is unable to get any response from the soldiers on the other side of the fence. And they back off when guns are pointed at them. And then they run for cover when some debris from the Seamer Scion fight crashes their way. And we're consistently getting these beats of Jess making remarks that suggest the situation is even worse than the others realize, but she never elaborates and then refuses to elaborate when Krauss confronts her about it. Yeah, we haven't talked about this much yet, but after our initial slow start in this arc, the entire first half just moves. Um, and Wildbow like ramps up that pace as the danger escalates. And part of keeping that pace up to this constant level of, of moving is to establish this fear of things we don't know. We don't know how bad Noelle is hurt. We don't know where her character's eye are, and we don't know what's so bad about the Seamurg that's causing everyone to freak the hell out. Uh, we know all these things are bad, but we don't know how bad. And and this this lack of knowledge like makes you extrapolate like the worst possible thing, which keeps your stakes high. It keeps you tense, and it actually serves to make readers read faster, which uh -huh. takes the elevated pace that Wild Bo is actually already setting, and then cranks it up a notch. Because um, you're read now, you're going through these events that are happening really fast, and you're going through them even faster. Yeah, no, totally. There's there's so many things to care about on so many levels. Yeah. So yeah, uh, while Cody breaks into a, a nearby house and goes to open the door for them, Kraus looks over his friends. He, he kind of looks over Oliver, a second string friend, unattractive and without personality. He looks over Marissa, who has been burnt out by her mother's mother's relentless pressure to strive uh, until she found security through obscurity in the gaming club. And he's kind of analyzing them. Yeah. And again, I think you got to wonder if this is this the Seamer influence here uh, or just Kraus taking a second amongst chaos uh, to look at his tools and decide who he can use here and who he can't. Um, it's clear he doesn't really respect Oliver <laughs> at all, um, but he does respect Marissa on, on, on some level. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, so um, I, I tend to miss pieces of texture like this when I'm reading. Uh, it's just kind of how my brain works. Maybe it's a bad habit, but I want to emphasize the atmosphere that the following scenes are taking place in. Uh, so inside this house they break into, 
Stacks of magazines covered every surface in the living room. There were plastic bags with tops tied sitting underneath the hall table. An artwork that included paintings, clay figures, vases, and bird sculptures sat on every surface that wasn't occupied. Yeah, I, I usually miss this background stuff as well, um, because my focus is always on on characters that when I see scene description, I read them, but I kind of glaze over them. Yeah. Um, but I that's part of the reason I enjoy doing this podcast is because these detailed rereads has me pay attention to this stuff like forces me to kind of um and and you're right that this scene works really well because it it is really representative of the chaos that's going on um it's another part of that where did everyone go puzzle um and this mat starts what is a really really interesting three beat throughout the rest of this um we see here that every single piece of surface has bird sculptures on it um, and, and that, that bird three beat is going to continue throughout it. Um, we're going to see birds a few more times in key spots when we're kind of showing the influence of the Seamurg here. Um, and I think this to me represents, obviously the, the, the birds are a pretty clear representation of the Seamurg because of the, the wings, the, the winged nature of her. I think they even call her crazy bird lady <laughs> multiple times throughout the arc. Yeah. Um, so we're seeing that like almost as if she's watching over all this, she's present in all of it. She's here with them through everything that happens here. Yeah. And if you don't buy that, this is an intentional symbolism, just wait until the last bird beat. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I think you will. Yeah. So once they get inside, they inspect Noel, who seems to be basically dying. Uh, Jess explains a bit about the Simurg and says that um, she, she first appeared in Lausanne, Switzerland. Uh, people tried to communicate with her, and eventually she started her song, and it caused a panic, uh, which was intensified by the strange thoughts the singing, singing caused. Uh, but then Jess ends the story here, even though Krauss suspects that there's more to it. Yeah, he's really perceptive here, Matt. Um, he catches, she pauses for a fraction of a second before answering a question. And that's enough for him to lead to believe that there's more going on. And I think that shows as, as everyone else is like being affected by this song is like losing focus, unable to stay clear. He doesn't seem that affected by it. Uh, he's noticing these small, minute character things that people are yeah. doing still. Totally. So yeah, Jess sends Kraus uh, to find something for everybody to drink, and he heads into the kitchen and hears a small banging noise. And he checks the backyard and finds a caged bird, I believe a cockatoo, uh, bashing its head, bashing its head in essentially against the, the metal lip of the cage. Um, and worse than this, he notices something in the cage. We don't know what it is, but we know that it pushes him beyond fear to despair. Hey, look, Matt, it's our second bird beat. Yeah. <laughs> a bird showing our character something very important um that's going to matter towards the rest of this and, and influence how everything's handled um we're going to get to this big reveal uh, uh the dimensional reveal at the end of the chapter and we're going to talk all about it but uh i do like parts of how this reveal is handled for sure yeah yeah so kraus then kills the bird out of pity which kind of makes us like him uh, for putting it out of its misery, but it's also mildly alarming that he does the deed so readily. Um, and then and then he keeps the knife on him, which has to be a beat deliberately placed to follow right after he thought about what a deranged creature with opposable thumbs could do. Um, just like, I'd hate to see what damage he could do manipulating a human. Oh, good, a knife I can carry with me. Um, and, and I'll be honest, at this point, I was leaning pretty heavily toward Kraus killing Cody in the near future. Yeah, I feel like that's what we're being set up to feel. Um, it, it, it's so funny because like you can you can do this over and over again throughout the chapter. What is the, the simmer 
manipulating to cause certain events. Uh, what beats are uh, Krauss making a decision or what beats are specifically decisions being made for him um, and the taking of the knife afterwards, the killing the bird and then slipping the knife um, in his uh, arm. I think he hides it. Um, so he has it later when he's fighting these monsters at the burger joint. Um, which leads him to survive the encounter, uh, which leads him to this case of superpowers, which they drink. And, and you can you can extrapolate these out like you can do this over and over again throughout this arc. And, and I don't think we're going to do it for every single one of them because we'd be here all night. But like there's so much cause and effect going on here. There's so much a chain of of choices. And it's it's so important to what the simmer actually does. And when we'll figure this out later. Yeah, yeah, totally. I agree. Yeah, so when when he brings Jess her water, he confirms that she knows whatever the thing is that he just learned looking into the birdcage, although we still don't know. Um, but he still suspects even after this that there's still more bad news that she knows about Simurg that, uh, that he doesn't. And she doesn't deny it, but she still won't elaborate. Yeah, and now, Matt, this is where I'm starting to think we're kind of bending over backwards to hide this dimensional reveal um that's really really pushing me on my hiding stuff from the audience for dramatic reveal dislike thing um but we'll wait we'll wait until the end of the chapter to to really dive into that yeah okay um yeah so they're they're distracted by some gunfire outside and uh kraus decides to ask marissa to look over jess uh sorry to look over uh noel uh, for signs of internal injuries yeah another hint uh, towards like how comfortable noel is with physical contact um, I wonder if that will matter lately. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you do start to see that the, the simmer singing really start to build at this point. Like Krauss almost has to fight back from losing his shit on Oliver um, for like suggesting that Noel is modest. Like you don't know her. Um, yeah. He doesn't do anything, but he's thinking it. Right. Yeah. He's, he's getting increasingly on edge and gradually becoming aware that this might not be entirely him um yeah but it doesn't it, it it doesn't really matter actually yeah so so cody does his very cody approach it's a conflict resolution of telling kraus that he thinks he's an asshole uh, to which kraus replies with his very kraus approach uh, of passive aggressive cockiness yeah I, look i, I don't want to say that like neither cody or kraus is perfect in this scene um and kraus is our point of view character so we sympathize with him a little more but like you have been saying before i think if we try we can imagine what cody must be going through right now um he's watched in the course of a day he's been replaced within his group of friends um with this person that he considers this cocksure asshole um and and he makes in this moment this correct kind of assumption that kraus would fuck over any of them if it meant helping noel uh, he would he would do that and uh, and he does <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, but what's funny is that as as much as we're tempted to decide against him, he's he's quite correct very often. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, he's basically he's saying, um, you know, but but when she said she wasn't interested, I accepted that. I walked away. Stayed her friend. You didn't. You slithered your way in, pressured her, and then Krauss responds, "I just let her know I was still interested while respecting the boundaries." She said, "If you don't believe me, ask her." Um, uh. <laughs> yeah, and and yeah. So like, I think it's really interesting, and, and you tweeted something along these lines. Um, but I think people could and, and indeed do argue all day about whether Krauss is really an irredeemable snake or just kind of a cocksure persistent guy. And I, I mean, it's it's interesting because this this little back and forth right here is is like the perfect encapsulation of that 
of that argument. Yeah, and and I I was tweeting about this, and I got some responses to my tweets to make me think that the popular opinion amongst war fans is like Kraus is awesome, Cody's the fucking worst, we hate him, um, and knowing how like knowing what we know about how this whole thing's end, ends i get that i get that sentiment but like i understand cody a lot here as well um and, and the thing about kraus is like we've said before he masks his insecurity with assholeness almost so he comes off as a jerk to a lot of people and those observing him that don't have our point of view on him looks like this snaky always confident uh egotistical jerk but we do know that's kind of not true um and and again i'm not on team cody here i'm not but <laughs> like imagine like imagine what this poor guy's going through like these emotions are high he's being fucked by this giant endbringer and like this guy took your girl or at least he you you think that he did um he took your spot on the team and then as soon as the crisis happened he's leading the team and like you can you can get what he's going through yeah no totally um it's still yeah still at this point um other than the fact that he's like making a bad situation worse which makes you kind of think he's just kind of an idiot it's it's under like i've never been you know, in this bad of a situation, I don't know how I would react, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 So Krauss manages to get him to drop the conversation by pointing out that the simmer scream might drive any argument that they're having in a violent direction. Uh, and then he changes the subject to making sure everyone is armed. <laughs> um, so Krauss gives Oliver a hatchet and then he starts playing with the nail gun <laughs> Uh, and Cody says, this is a mistake, a ranged weapon. We walk upstairs with this stuff and in half an hour we'll have killed and butchered each other. Um, and he kind of has a point here. Yeah. Um, and then I like Kraus touched the small chainsaw that hung on the wall, saw Cody and Oliver stiffening an alarm and decided against it. Um, and he eventually selects a curtain rod that could serve as a spear. Yeah. This is such a wonderful little scene. And I, I think it's, it's, hits a lot of comedy beats and i think that serves to relax the tension a little bit um which is important but we can again play with cause and effect here and, and wonder if kraus chose the spear because he wanted the spear or because that's what put him in the best position to make it through the uh future events to get the canisters and and start down that road yeah i like to imagine this scene being filmed and like in a film you're not in you're not in kraus's head so as you're watching him like wave his hands over these weapons and linger over the chainsaw. You might actually be wondering like, is he about to snap and kill everyone? <laughs> yeah. 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 So they go back upstairs and they learn that Noel is certainly bleeding internally. Uh, Krauss decides that he's going to go outside to try to find a doctor and Cody and Marissa agree to accompany him. They wonder where all the people are as they're walking outside. Um, and whatever it is that Krauss figured out, he seems to know why there aren't any people and he lies seemingly more smoothly than Jess did anyway. Uh, we're being prompted to try to solve the mystery ourselves, I think. And uh, I wonder, Scott, with your powers, uh, did you connect clues that can be found by looking into a birdcage with reason why there aren't any people around? Because I sure didn't. I did not. Um, it is a cleverly well-hidden clue. Even if you think what's at the bottom of a birdcage newspaper, I still don't think that necessarily draws you to the conclusion um, that that we reach here 
Yeah. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know if anybody does let us know if you did, you know, but uh, yeah. So, so here we're finally told though, you know, we, we're basically brought to this point and the, this, the tension is released. We're told what happened. The, the reason Luke got lost in his own neighborhood, the reason the Seamurg was here, uh, the newspaper had the name for the president of earth of United States of America in earth bet, uh, not the president of Krauss's America, uh, presumably in earth Aleph. Um, Krauss isn't from earth bet. The Seamer brought him here. He's from an Earth where there there are no inbringers, and there are a thousand times fewer pair humans. Yeah, so this is it. This is our big reveal. And I think before I want to get into uh, talking about the parts of it I like and the parts of it I don't, um, I wanted to touch on something briefly because while I didn't see things particularly going this way i did kind of suspect their tiny little note of setup all those chapters ago that there are two versions of earth that are in contact with each other would would end up mattering in some way um especially kind of with how often people in the reddit specifically referenced well that's how things go in earth bet um so it kind of seemed like this dimensional thing is going to matter at some point in the future um i don't think that made any of this like, I don't think it ruined any of this for me, um, but I was expecting the two Earths thing to matter at some point. But I I do really like it here. I love how it fits in with the travelers themselves. I love how it fits in with the clues outside of this arc that we've seen, um, how they like Trickster seemingly didn't care about the planet. There's that note where he's like, you can become the leader of the entire planet for all I care. And it makes sense now. This isn't his home. Um, why they're lonely. This All this makes sense now. It's really good. Yeah, totally. So the reveal itself, Matt. <laughs> yeah. Um, we both know I'm pretty particular when it comes to masking uh, information characters know from the audience for dramatic effect. And I do think we have a little of that here. Um, there are parts of this I absolutely love that, that we've talked about already, how how jarring the tone felt, the little tiny hints that we've been given along the way that are so hidden that there aren't even really hints until we get the reveal itself and then realize that there were hints. Um, all of that works really well. It's really well done. It's really set up great. I like it a lot. Um, where things do start to get a little shaky for me is when Krauss figures out everything. Um, he knows it all, but we still hold that reveal uh, for the end of the chapter so it lands at this chapter end moment and I, I get dramatically why that happened I just thought the execution of it like tugged on my annoyance strings a little bit <laughs> yeah I mean I don't think it annoyed me I guess I can see the argument that like so if if this reveal had been held any longer or like to the next chapter then I definitely would have felt like Okay, that like it, it almost would have missed its moment, you know. Yeah. Um, there was an appropriate moment to reveal it, and and I guess I do feel like this was the appropriate moment to reveal it. Um, yeah, I guess I I don't have the pet peeve you have necessarily in the sense that it doesn't. It's not something I notice as I'm reading, but it is like you've said. It is like an artificial way of creating tension. And what's funny is there's plenty of tension in this in this yeah, in this arc. Yeah. Um. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I, I I don't know if I would would say to do anything different. No, and I, and I and like this is something that I fully recognize is a me thing, and it just whenever whenever I start to feel like almost oppressively manipulated by by a story, like that I'm like being intentionally 
hidden stuff from just for dramatic effect. That's when it annoys me. There, there are there are things in here that work really well though. Like I like the fact that he sees the newspaper, and we don't like. I like the fact that the the reveal is not the minute he sees the newspaper because this there's this really wonderful beat where like he's almost not even processing it yet, and it makes sense how we don't show the newspaper. We let him like kind of sit with it and process it and like. What did I just see? How is that putting the pieces together for me? I like that a lot. And then he goes to Jess and um, and has the conversation with her where, where they both admit that they both know this. And I even almost like that it's not revealed here because it makes sense within the story because they're surrounded by their friends and they don't want to tell them. But for it to carry on into a whole nother scene after that where our character is not thinking about it at all, it's not revealing it just to hold for this end of the chapter that's the part for me where it it just gets like uh, i don't know yeah i mean i guess i guess it could have been rearranged slightly in a in a very micro way but uh yeah we'll we'll uh yeah. I, I don't know it doesn't it doesn't bother me too much but but i do i do like get what you mean in in the sense of it being manipulative which it is it, it is it's just a certain certain style yeah 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 and i fully expect people to vehemently disagree with me on this i'm fine with that i would never like knock the work down a, a quality level or anything because this it's just scott pet peeve yeah sure so we move into 17.4 um the trio hear a scream uh, and they follow it to a burger joint uh, there are eight people and three monsters within the monsters are as follows a guy with a very long neck and redundant scythe arms called Egesa, a giant malformed woman, Gueris, and a young woman with uh, striped in horizontal lines, Matroska. Um, I'm not even going to try to go over the creepy cryptic, cryptic dialogue that they have amongst themselves, um, although I do want your reaction to it. Yeah, um, <laughs> so my assumption at this point had continued to be that these monsters are case 53s, and then they start talking in this weird language, and I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> and uh-huh. like, I even went and tried to like sneakily Google the language to see if it comes up with anything. Um, I didn't come up with anything. I don't know if I was just doing it wrong, but I, it's not any language that I was able to immediately find. Um, so yeah, this kind of threw me for a loop and it had me doubting once again, are these case 53s? Is this something else? What's going on here? Yeah, no, I, I definitely did. I, I was like, are we seeing some whole new thing or is this or is this something we're familiar with, Case 53? Yeah, and there was a moment yeah. where they mentioned that they're wearing, like, prison garb. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, fuck, did we just break into the birdcage? Is that what's happening? And I got, like, really excited for a moment, <laughs> thinking that that was possibility. And I was like, well, no, I don't remember there being this many monsters at the birdcage. Yeah, I wonder if that that sounds like a familiar thought that I might have had several years ago when I read this. But, yeah, that's interesting. So yeah, it, it seems from context that Matryoshka um, consumes people in some sense and probably takes on some of their attributes and then permanently digests them if they stay in her grasp for too long. So she starts to consume Weris and Kraus, probably acting under the influence of the Simurg, charges and stabs Agesa with a spear. Um, and to my mind, uh, this is like totally insane um, and not like him at all. Um, and his thought in his thoughts, he admits that this might be the case, but that doesn't really stop him from doing it. Yeah, you're right. This is so obviously the seamer. Like we know that Krauss is the type of 
subtlety trickstery type of person not like direct action gonna charge you with the spear so like yeah it goes against everything that we've seen in his character so far and i like how he almost has to check himself several times like there's one point where he's like he's knocked down one of them and he's starting to think about the like what he can do with the other two and he's like wait a minute no i'm just here to help these people and like i don't need to try to brutally murder all these yeah. all these monsters that's not what i'm trying to do here yeah totally um yeah but but he does move on and he attacks um matryoshka as she's starting to disintegrate and wrap around Weris. Uh, but then Egesa, who he just stabbed gets the drop on him but doesn't kill him um probably not out of the kindness of his heart though it's it's probably just because they want to feed him to matryoshka yeah there's like a lot you could talk about here about the case 53s and and how they look and then how their powers work and how otherworldly and disturbing that is and how much of your perception of them is based on that whole thing. Because we have these, if if we fully agree that they're case 53s, which is what I've, I'm, I've convinced myself this is what this is. Um, they're thrust into this world. They have the singing messing with their minds, just like everyone else does. Um, they are lost in a world. They don't know. Um, people are hunting them they lash out and they lash out in the only way they know how they use their powers to escape. Um, and they attack the first things that they see, which is kind of exactly the situation that the travelers are in and kind of exactly what Krauss does here. So like as much as, as much as we're seeing these things as monsters, like it's very easy to, to empathize with them too. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's totally correct. And in fact, these, these people are, are victims. Um, and if anything, their situation is much worse than Krauss's situation um and uh and, and they yeah they, they don't they don't do well um yeah so but, then there's this but like worm they're also like eating and digesting people so like they're not <laughs> totally innocent and everything yeah um but yeah yeah right. i think that's intentional we're supposed to see that kind of parallel yeah right uh, then we have this this moment where uh it, it says kraus slipped so to speak he hadn't even realized he was resisting the song but in the pain in his momentary fear he let himself listen looked at the shapes that were filling in the dark places he could see. And then he flashes back to his first meeting with Noel, um, uh, where Noel is very, very unapproachable, but Krause is persistent, which is the one quality we understand by now is at his core. Marissa comes to protect Noel from him, and we get more reinforcement of Krause's reputation as a manipulator. Yeah, and, and like we've been talking about before, it is really interesting to me that most of Krause's reputation as sneaky and manipulative is seen externally from stories that other people are telling stories that we actually don't get to hear very often. Like everyone starts telling stories about this time that that Krauss did this, but they never finish them. Um, so we never actually see him like in the middle of a prank or a manipulation or anything. Um, but we, yes, we see him as persistent. We see him put Noel up on this pedestal. Um, does he manipulate people? Yes, I, I think he does. But like you said, it's all subconscious. He's not aware that he's doing it. This scene, for instance, um, I think he he generally wanted to tell Noelle that he liked her paper and like was interested in her. And then like just so happened to hear them talk about games. Um, I think, yes, we see here that him like joining the team was probably in an effort to get closer to Noelle. Is this kind of manipulation? Yeah. Um, what is he aware that that he's doing it? No. Yeah, and also that's that's not a terribly egregious 
like example of manipulation like no not at all i mean you yeah. you just like i want to be closer to person i yeah. i like this person i want to be near them i will join club like that's why right. people join clubs <laughs> yeah totally exactly yeah um yeah so i really i really like these transitions um between the the flashbacks and in reality uh so like for example the lunch tray appears near the beginning of the flashback to the cafeteria with noel uh, and then it's the plastic tray clattering to the ground in the burger joint back in back in in our storyline um, that brings us back. Yeah, it's very very cinematic, um, and I can't help but think Wildbo has a bit of a video editor eye here when he comes up with stuff like this because you can almost see the tray falling um, maybe in slow motion, um, and you can like see the cut back. Like I imagine it cuts like back as soon as the tray hits the ground, and you can even color grade the flashback and the present scene differently so that transition is really clear um but it's all there on the page you've got a great scene set up here visually and it's all there on the page yeah yeah this whole arc is uh, i find myself just automatically visualizing which i see as a sign of clear writing yeah so kraus is still like mentally out of sorts even more so now actually and he slashes against his neck with his hidden knife and then he runs from Weris. Uh, and she catches him and he stabs her hand, but it's his own hand that it bleeds. Yeah, it's kind of a, a bummer that we see Guerris die here in a second, because that power sounds really cool. And I'd be interested to see how that plays out. Um, Matt, so here's something I, maybe you can help me with. Do we have any idea where any of these names come from? Can we play the name game with any of these three? Um, a cursory scared of spoilers Google search of mine didn't come up with anything outside just references to these chapters. Well, Matryoshka doll is the, is the nesting doll, you know, um, with the, you know, the the Russian doll with the, where you put one doll inside of the other doll inside of the other doll. And and her power is she kind of like eats people and puts them inside her and she can put multiple people inside herself. And there's maybe there's like some sense in which there's a precedence to them in, in the layers. So so hers hers is the only one that comes off to me as like a cape name, like 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 it's based on her power. Um, the, the other two, I, I was either like, well, maybe that does mean something. Or I was like, maybe maybe these guys haven't had their memories erased yet. And these are just their names. Um, but yeah, I, I don't we don't we don't really know how all that works. So it's really just a, a conjecture. Yeah yeah so yeah, that's yeah that's all i have there um so then uh two capes arrive merdin and Armsmaster. uh they quickly suss out where is his power and kill her it's pretty brutal actually yeah like <laughs> i it's like they don't have time for it and they just want to kill her and get it over with um like i know again these these k53s have been murdering innocent people and eating them but I was kind of shocked at, like you were at, at how brutal this was, I guess, because they look monstrous. They're just kind of lumped in the same category as an Endbringer. So we just got to kill on sight immediately. Um, do we want to play the name game again with with our new our new hero? Sure. Um, actually, I didn't fully realize that you hadn't seen Murden yet. Um, Maybe we saw him like in passing oh, you know or a name. Yeah, I think he something. might have been working. I think he was working with Idolin um, in the. Um, Seamurg battle and the, the uh, Leviathan battle, but yeah, yeah it, was, it was way too much passing. going on there. Yeah, with a million other cape names that you that you just met, but yeah, um, I mean, isn't that so? So I don't, I didn't look it up, but isn't that like basically 
Merlin, like a form of, of Merlin. Yeah, it's a Welsh Welsh okay. legend. Um, I don't think it's exactly Merlin, but it's similar. It's a cra- He went crazy. <laughs> he saw prof like saw prophecies and went crazy and had magic powers. So, okay, yeah, and and Merlin apparently is one of the capes that like, um, and, and we saw like a hint of this with Classic Wenye where where she she sees her powers as magic and and Merdin sees his powers as magic um and 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 kind of treats them that way um and, it, and that's interesting yeah. yeah i love when he says begone when he like yeah. he doesn't need to say anything but he adds the little the little fun casting magic right. spell thing yeah to and it. like when he traces his his staff around the air you have to wonder if he even needs to do that at all yeah um yeah um so so yeah like you said um kraus kraus finds that he can't interact with him now because Merdin has kind of like shunted him into a pocket dimension type thing. Yeah. So I saw dark tower over the weekend and one of the worst lines in this terrible movie was when, uh, um, Matthew McConaughey said, you're resistant to my magics. And it's such a terrible line and it's read terribly, but it's all I could think about watching this stuff. It's like, ah, his damn magics. Yeah. He's resistant. He's resistant to Merdin's magics. <laughs> So yeah, it it does make you wonder. I think uh, knowing that Arma's master has a bit of this simmer exposure, um, but supposedly not too much. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, we could spend another hour <laughs> extrapolating that out and, and what kind of plan this the simmer had for him. But uh, it is it is interesting. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so Kraus listens in, and I think there's an implication that he's not supposed to be able to hear this, but he listens in on their discussion with Dragon. Um, and he doesn't know what the hell is going on, um, but we can actually follow it pretty well because we know these folks. Even when Merdin gives Dragon a really hard time for just following orders, we know that Dragon is compelled to follow orders, and, and we kind of sympathize with her. Um, Kraus follows them to a particular location that Dragon has marked, and it's a section of a cauldron building, I guess, teleported in. Yeah, there's lots of really interesting flavor stuff learned here. We learn about that a ddid protocol um which we learn about in a few chapters that's absolutely insane um we learned that arms master was a dick uh, before we knew him as a dick and then yeah more information about what's going on with the seamerg um how they're so concerned with minimizing exposure how they don't even like acknowledge kraus like and they want to get away from him as soon as possible and get out yeah right and 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 where something that we we don't really understand why this is the case yet but for for example um if she's answering questions for us we don't want to know Merton said and like we, we don't we don't get why there's this paranoia and this sense of like wanting to quarantine yet um but but it's that it's very it's very evocative yeah so much of this arc is played like a mystery novel kind of it just all these mysteries waiting to be solved and we keep getting these hints and here's another big hint for it and and we know when they say she they're talking about the seamerg um, and, and it's not hard to see that this, when they're talking about this section of the room that they found, that maybe this wasn't meant uh, for them, was it? It was meant for someone else. Yep. Yep. Um, that's, and, and that someone else has no trouble finding it. Um, yeah. So, so we get another flashback, um, again, a great, a great transition because, because Krauss is thinking to himself, I don't understand 
which we assume refers to the fact that physics don't apply to him in any kind of logical way right now because of the, the dimensional stuff Merton did. But it also opens up the flashback because in the flashback, Noelle is breaking up with him and he convinces her not to. Pro tip, never do that. Yeah, I've never uh, known a relationship where you convince someone to not break up with you and it goes well. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, I think this whole scene is really we see Krauss at his most manipulative that we've seen so far. And again, I don't think he's conscious of it. Yeah, totally. He's he's react. He's almost it's self-protective. It's reactive. Um, and that doesn't like excuse it so much as it's just like, again, it's a character flaw. Um, it's not evil. Yeah, you know? no, yeah. no. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he's he's like you said, he's weaseling his way around her arguments. And, and when she says, don't do that, that uh, he thinks uh, he, he spread his arms for the second time in a minute. Helpless. Do what? D d don't do what? Don't make sense. Um, <laughs> and, and I like this this uh, like we just said, this this moment of confirmation that he isn't really manipulative on purpose. He just can't help himself. Yeah, he's just like we said, persistent and he knows what he wants and he wants that thing. And he really no is not an answer uh, he really listens to um and this is it's funny because before we even knew about kraus and we knew about this whole thing this is something that we have seen in trickster we have seen him behave like this before and i like that we're kind of coming full circle on this yeah yeah totally um so yeah it, it's it's always kind of obvious to us um and to kraus that there's something up with noel um uh, but she'll never say what it is, and Krauss is intent on acting like it doesn't matter, whatever it is. Yeah, and I think this is the real danger of the idea of putting someone on a pedestal like this, because Krauss is, is obsessed with Noel, and but but he never really sees her. I mean, not really. Like you could almost argue that her breakup here is almost a cry for help that she says, I'm miserable. I hate myself and I need, I need to fix that in myself. I need to deal with that. And Krauss acknowledges that there's something wrong with her, that there's something going on that she's not telling him, but that pedestal she's on prevents him from actually being concerned about it. Like he just tells her, I think you're fantastic. Um, but she's not Matt. She's she's definitely not. She's got some sort of disorder. Yeah, she's she's saying she's saying this isn't working. I'm not happy with this. And he's saying basically, yes, you are. Um, which is not an argument. Uh, but he he pushes it through so hard. Um, it, I mean, she, she she is right. They they actually kind of make each other miserable. Like he he's miserable here. Um, especially where he says, uh, okay, if you think that's for the best, uh, but I just need you to do one thing. Look me in the eyes. You tell me that. <laughs> it's awful. It's awful. Yeah. He's God. He's so, he's so manipulative here, isn't he? Like, yeah. Like he even like pulls in Marissa and it's like, Marissa says you're happier than you've ever been. And then he goes like, I'll leave the team if you want. Like I'll, I'll break up the team. Yeah. Um, like, and then makes her like look into his eyes and then starts talking about how, look, this is just a bad day. Don't let one bad day ruin everything. And it's like, you're not you're not listening to her. You're not yeah. like you're in total self-preservation mode. He's like desperate to just stop her in any way possible. And yeah, I think 
we said it again. It's not conscious. He's not. I don't think he's fully aware that he's like manipulating her. He's just in desperation mode. Yeah, he's definitely driven by fear a lot. And this is something that I'm going to want to bring up again later, I'm I'm sure. But like the travelers don't have classical trigger events because they don't have they don't have, you know, natural triggers or however you want to phrase it. Mm -hmm. Um, But they all do have pathologies or, or, or deep, deep character flaws that are basically serve the same function of of like the 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 calcified trauma that continues to drive them after they become a cape and this is a very clean representation of of like what it is about trickster that makes him screwed up yeah yeah absolutely and i I think it's really important that we we recognize that but then also yes say that if there is if there is a group of people out there that say that trickster is just an asshole that's bad um, I think that's really selling him short here because I think you're absolutely right that he is a flawed character that has a a problem and, and it will lead to a ton of problems. But he is not evil like he he is doing what he thinks is best and he's just wrong a lot. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So so the flashback ends and uh, Krauss looks at the segment of building uh, and it looks like a doctor's office superficially. So he figures he can find some medical supplies. So he he climbs up into it. But all he finds is, is a lousy briefcase full of incredible superpowers, which he takes, of course, uh, and it contains only six canisters, Scott. And I think at this point I actually stopped reading and I mentally tallied up how many people there were in their party. Yeah, I did the exact same. And I think the natural conclusion when you do that is to realize that this Krauss-Cody conflict of who's in the team, who's not in the team, will once again rear its head uh, when it comes to we have a limited number of canisters and a certain amount of people. Um, and it it doesn't quite play off like that, does it? Nope, nope. And we'll we'll get into that yeah, in a bit. I think, I think I may have briefly wondered if like we would get a, a switcheroo and one of them would naturally trigger. Um, and then that would that would be oh, the surprise, yeah. but uh, that didn't happen. Part of me, I guess, once I realized they were from a different uh, Earth, where that was so much rarer, I just assumed that that wasn't even a possibility. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, you you turn out to be right. So yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, we move into seventeen dot five, and Kraus has made his way back toward the house they're all holding up in, and he runs into Cody on the way back. And Cody is creepily leaning against the wall, tapping his crowbar and acting antagonistic again. And it turns out Cody is getting the flashbacks, too. But his are all about Kraus. Um, and really, as he goes over the memories that he's sharing, Kraus, Kraus is pretty hateable from Cody's point of view. Yeah. But but Cody's attitude isn't exactly productive either, because he says, funny thing is, I'd rather see her. Uh, I'd, I'd, Sorry, I'd rather see her win than see you come out as the hero here, her being the simmer. Yeah, that's fucked up, Cody. Yeah. That's really fucked up. But <laughs> but this is really revealing, too. Like you said, he, he's been screwing with Cody a lot. He hurt his perception both on the team and amongst fans by mas- making him late, even if it was a practice match. It, it And, like, like, again, it feels like he's trying to get a spot on this team. Um, it, he's trying to manipulate it to where he looks better. Um, and, and like we said, it's easy to hate Cody. It's very easy, especially as things move along, but we can't pretend that Krauss is, is completely innocent in all this. Yeah. I mean, Cody's still like in this moment where he just got betrayed and kicked off the team by all of his friends, even though Krauss is like, Hey, don't be childish. It's like, 
that's kind of where Cody is, you know? Yeah. 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 So we do learn from Cody as they're heading back that all the, 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 the other uh, team members are pretty much falling apart. Yeah. Almost as if the, the Seamurg is intentionally making it. So they have to rely on Kraus who uh, simultaneously is being shown Noel memories in order to encourage him to keep moving forward. Yep. Almost. So yeah, I enjoy this beat where Kraus remarks that the monsters um, just seemed like confused people who didn't know what was going on. Yeah, that's especially ironic considering he's the one that fucking charged them with the spear. Right, and tried to tried to brutally kill them. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, I mean, and he's right. I mean, he's yeah. It's it's a it's an interesting moment. So yeah, Marissa starts working on Krause's damaged hand, and Cody hands the briefcase to Jess. Uh, she immediately says to destroy it. Yeah, and again, this is another hint that Jess is hiding something big, um, something really big. If you want to destroy superpowers. Yeah, totally. So yeah, Kraus acts like the the case of powers would serve as a weapon like any other, but Jess points out that it's permanent, and then Luke pick, uh, picks up from their back and forth that something else is going on, but they convince him not to pry. Kraus worms his way into convincing Jess to just hand over the papers so they can look over them. Um, and as they look at the papers, they find out that you're supposed to have passed physical and psychological tests before taking the vials, uh, which we knew from Battery. Um, and their current situation seems pretty far from ideal. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So Jess is finally pushed to explain why this is a really bad idea, and she finishes the story of uh, Lausanne. So six months after the Simmerg left, things started to go wrong for people in all new ways. Terrorism, suicide, violence, chains of cause and effect leading to disaster. And this is what happens everywhere she goes. A burst of chaos when she arrives and the heroes fight her off followed months later by people snapping and turning into monsters like Mannequin. And uh, she basically turns people into guided missiles. Yeah, and here it is. Here's another one of our mystery solved. And like we've been discussing cause and effect all throughout the arc, how one choice um, changed to something else, to an effect, and it changed to something else and to something else. And the Seamurg almost represents like the ultimate realization of that cause and effect chain, um, but not quite because she is in a place where she knows the effects beforehand and and can push decisions to a certain thing so the travelers being here opening the portal to the cauldron dimension uh kraus encountering the case 53s which led him to the heroes which led him to the vials all of this um all of it could be just the seamer manipulating them and it's we're now moved from just cause and effect to this like kind of ultimate free will versus destiny paradigm um and and luke kind of demonstrates that in what he says next yeah luke shook his head but but you can't if you think that way then there's no action we could take that she wouldn't have predicted and nudged so that it leads to the worst case scenario <laughs> um and at which point i invite you to remember the gif of uh sam neil laughing in the mountains of madness <laughs> um yeah so like Luke is right. I mean, if if you're a walking time bomb, um, you're a walking time bomb. But if you're a walking time bomb who can, I don't know, create a small sun or turn a car into a bullet, um, it's going to be worse than if you were just a normal person who who had uh, some bad intent. Yeah, but this is where we get into this free will versus fate thing, right? Because if the Seamer really knows the outcome of all this and has pushed everyone towards that outcome weren't they always going to take the vials wasn't that always going to happen wasn't noelle always going to end up the way she is wasn't all of this just 
to get us to the point where an enraged Noel is rampaging across Brockton Bay and our characters are going to have to fight her. Like how much choice did our characters actually have in this? And I think that's what the arc as a whole is exploring. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I think it was many arcs ago that we had kind of a, a little interlude where we were talking about the nature of free will or, or the, the illusory nature of free will. Um, it's, it's in this arc more than any other that it's, it's clear that, that free will is an illusion, particularly for these characters, because they, the, the, the situation was set up such that they would make the decision that, that the simmer wants them to basically like there was the, the parameters were just too, too well constrained and and even Krauss is aware that that is the case as he's making the decisions that, that we're about to get to. He, he's like, yeah. you know, the, later on when he's saying well played Simmerg, it's like he he knows he knows that he's being manipulated into this, but he's doing it anyway because he he can't live with the other options. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, um, just as Jess emphasizes that the aftermath is where Simmerg is the worst the worst uh the song fades and now we're in the aftermath and jess starts to sob <laughs> what a perfect moment of bad timing isn't yep. our yep. narrative's fun you can just line <laughs> stuff up like this to land with with the best impact because you control the world uh, uh it's fun yeah 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 and then then of course we see the side of kraus um that is generally uh, g- genuinely admirable because he does all that he can for his friend he makes he makes this wise crack yeah, and I love Kraus so much in this moment. Um, it, it's really easy to shit on him, and we've been doing it, but he is the tragic hero of the story. He's the one making these decisions, but he's just a kid pulled into another world trying to do the best he can um, for the people he cares about. That's 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 who he is, and it's kind of sad. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally sad, yeah. Uh, so yeah, we enter uh, 17.6, um, in the kitchen, he and Jess discuss uh, when they should tell the others that they're all aliens now. The power is back on and somebody turns on the TV, so their hands are forced in that matter. Kraus takes all the blame, though, acting as though it was him who convinced her to keep quiet about it. Yeah, um, that's it's pretty pretty noble of him. <laughs> We're seeing this trend among him that he's he's starting to... He doesn't care what people think of him. He doesn't care if people hate him anymore. As long as, as long as he can protect Noel, um, this is this is this transition to this now where, like, he's gonna be willing to do anything as long as it's for her. Yeah, right. It it is the first hint of that status quo where where he's kind of like keeping the team together just by having someone to to hate, I guess. Yeah. So Cody attacks him out of anger and punches him, but Kraus kicks him off, and the fight doesn't really es- escalate beyond that. Yeah, and I think this kind of ties into what the Seamurg was doing to each of them individually. Cody was being egged on um, to force this conflict, but but Kraus was shown different things, shown things to almost kind of focus him. Um, and, and so Kraus in this moment is able to calm down and not escalate the attack further and, and send things crazy because he's focused on his goal and the Seamurg kind of helped him focus. Yeah, right. She's she's keeping it at a simmer until it needs to be at a boil. That's, that's yeah. great, yeah. So they learned from TV um, that the plan is to build a permanent blockade around Madison. Uh, a local hospital inside the city will serve those still stuck in there. And we get verification that the Simmer copied Professor Haywire's technology. Man, so it can... 
so it can it sees the future it can move stuff with its mind um it can create cause and effect chains and it can borrow other powers <laughs> to do stuff yeah either that or it can just copy things that it finds and because because i don't know if we're supposed to take jess at her word but jess says that she's not a tinker so that implies that she's just copying but yeah i don't know i don't i, I don't know what we're supposed to be sure of at this point yeah so Krauss and marissa look for a car together uh and he asks her as they're walking what memories the simmer showed her basically he's he's trying to understand the the inbringer's approach and she finally tells him that the simmer showed her a time when she had bucked off her mother's presence and influence and then consequently embarrassed herself in, on stage um and and her, and her mom had had smiled at, at her at her failure basically knowing that she would kind of come crawling back and she says that smile that was what the simmer showed me except it lingered couldn't shake it almost as if the simmer was doing it and not my mom um ah, yeah so so good so, so this all kind of leads kraus to guess that the simmer's plan whatever it is is imminent yeah and this is when kraus really starts to make a lot of assumptions based off of very incomplete information um i think and, and i think we'll get into this later but i think he almost uses the the predestination type stuff to justify the choices he's making because he can say this was always going to happen anyway so i might as well do it yeah right i think i think you're right and and that's that 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 in itself plays into her hands yeah yeah marissa really is opening up a bit here um and you know sorry to tip the reveal early but uh, you know it's easy to forget that we're seeing into the head of the girl who refused to kill lung when she had the chance and who who hesitated to kill members of the nine when she had the chance who consistently flinches away from using her power at all um and and even here she's lonely already yeah and it's 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 the seamer right it's that one time yeah. she showed strength that one time she stood up to her mom uh, a bad thing happened to her and it was reinforced like times a million on her and almost as if to, to beat into her you know don't find your strength be weak back off trust in the judgment of other people um don't be your own person mm -hmm. yeah basically just being undermined so ultimately, um, the two of them break into a hotel and they grab some credit cards and some keys. And Kraus realizes after they obtain a car that Cody has returned to the house to take one of the cauldron vials while nobody's paying attention. So he rushes back, um, uh, but Cody can't find the vial and he lies and tells Cody that they destroyed the vials. Cody, you dick. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, and then Krauss is thinking she wanted this. She wanted Luke and Noel and Oliver to be distracted. That's why she made them remember the things they did. She wanted you to hate me. And I think she wanted me to get to go just a little too far. Yeah. And I think the interesting point here is that Krauss says that he wants to talk to Luke to find out what Luke saw, but he didn't get to yet. So he doesn't actually know what Luke, Noel and Oliver saw in their visions. Uh, he, he knows Marissa's that's the only person he knows so he's jumping to a lot of conclusions here in his desperation he's kind of warped everything to be all about him and and in doing so it kind of masks the bigger picture from him that this was never really about him that he was just a tool and it was always 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 about Noel yeah so you know it, within the frame of what we're shown here um if 
if he's a guided missile, he's a guided missile whose main purpose is to get Noel to take her vial. Yeah. Like he's he's totally being manipulated, but he assumes that whatever the 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 nightmare thing that happens due to the Sumer's influence is going to be that it's going to be through him, and it, it it that's only true in an instrumental sense. Right. Yeah. Uh, so they drive Noel to the hospital and uh, wait to be processed by Dragon's AI. Nurses come and take Noel, and the AI explains to Kraus how difficult it's going to be to ever get out of here. Uh, Ten months of constant checkups, a tattoo, permission required to do pretty much anything, notification of employers, notification of renters. Um, and then when the AI asks for information uh, from his bank, he realizes that he has no identity even in this world. Um, and the process uh, won't even begin until they can provide some form of identification, which they don't have and can't fake. So in short, there is no way out for these guys. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think there's a certain argument that you can make here as we learn what these DDID terrible, awfully cruel parameters are, um, that the idea of this thing influencing your free will and the reaction you have to it in your overzealous attempt to control that is possibly, in fact, propagating the very thing that you're trying to prevent, um, that that these eternal all-knowing influences on cause and effect um like it's really tough to say what like what is affecting what and what part of what you're doing is just part of the plan and what part of it isn't but regardless we see this solution to the seamerg that's almost like barbaric that like these people have to be tattooed and and like basically they have to tell anyone anywhere whenever they do something that they were under this influence forever yeah which would, like you said, I mean, this is all more Sam Neill laughing dot gif, um, because it, it's it's like you can't you can't quarantine cause and effect. Like for all you know, the the therapist who they're talking to in their triweekly therapy session is like the person who they're conveying some specific messaging to, and then that person is going to go do some horrible thing. Like it, it's 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 really almost. I mean, I, I don't know, like the only the only thing that makes it even slightly credible to me is the idea that like the PRT has like, you know, thinker capes who could potentially be like, look, we have some special insight into the way the Seamer does this and, and using our powers, we can say that this will work. But we're not given any reason to believe that's true within the story. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it just seems yeah. like a, a desperate attempt to control something that you have no control over. Yeah. Um, which is kind of what fate is. Right. And this, yeah. this it's kind of what this whole conflict between free will and fate are. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, in, in this moment of, of Krauss realizing that there's, that there's no, there's no way out of this. The doctor returns to tell them how bad off Noel is. Uh, at best, she'll have to wear a colostomy bag for the rest of her life. And she could still very well die. So Kraus responds to these factors by racing back to the house and he grabs the canisters from where he hid them under the couch. Uh, he pulled, he, he looks them over. He sees the Deus, Jaunt, Prince slash Aegis, Vestige, Division, and Robin. And he figures a Jaunt is a short trip. So that will do. And he toasts the simmer before drinking it. <laughs> and of course, this is, this is where we see what his true plan was all along. And I like that, like 
we we were set up to think that this was all about this Krauss Cody conflict, right? That that what we were being led to was Krauss going too far and doing something to Cody that that this this antagonizing relationship. But no, that wasn't it. It was about this. It was about getting Krauss here to this moment um, where he makes this decision um, in desperation to try to save Noel, who he's he's obsessed with and he can't lose. He can't do it. Um, and of course he makes the decision. Yep. And he has the vision, uh, crystals living, a pair moving together, creatures folding and unfolding through space across multiple worlds, falling toward a barren planet, no water, but still earth somehow. Matt I said I was done speculating on this stuff. And I fucking <laughs> meant it. Let's move on. Very, very well. <laughs> so, uh, Krauss seems almost blase about his new power. Like it's just not his priority. Um, but, but he does kind of use it a couple times to test it out. Uh, so he, he perceives it as like pressures balancing between objects and then like a vibrating cord between them, uh, will, will kind of manifest in his perception when they're balanced. And then that allows him to swap those things. Um, so he gets the hang of it quickly and then he, uh, almost immediately, almost immediately we see that he's pretty like intuitively clever with it. Yeah. I really do enjoy just how Wildboat describes the power. Um, like the, the perception that he has, it's very cool, but it, it has a certain logic to it as well. Like I can't imagine how else you'd explain this power with words. So it, it's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like it a lot too. Um, and you know, so his, his friends kind of chase him back here and, and see that he's done this and he's, he's kind of, confessing to them he says I, I know this is shitty Krauss admitted but my excuses my reasons for doing it maybe they don't make up for what I'm doing but I'm okay with you guys hating me if it means helping Noel um, which to me just echoes I was doing this for Dinah oh yeah remember remember that Taylor girl <laughs> yeah isn't this story still about her <laughs> um, I, I do think that you pointing this out here is absolutely spot on though because just like Taylor Krauss's primary motivation here is all about Noel. And because he's, you know, like a shark looking straight ahead, blind to everything else that's happening. Um, and because like he's just heading foot headlong into this thing that is going to doom them. And I think it's intentional that this is, that this, this is taking place now in this part of the story where we've paused Taylor's story at this moment where, um, she made a, a choice. She killed Coyle, um, and now we're we're about to see the the horrific consequence of that thing, and how these two consequences are so tightly wound to each other. Um, and and like it's it's such a good way to take this self contained traveler's arc and then spread it out into our narrative proper as well. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a tangent. I don't know if we need to go into, but you can almost wonder if. If like the simmer had some hand in killing coil, even because that serves her plans too. Oh yeah. You can almost wonder it. If only there was some way to symbolically show that yeah. at the end of the arc. Right. I, I wonder, I don't know. Scott, we'll have to just <laughs> see. Um, yeah. So he, he, he trickster tra traps their car in the driveway uh, with his power. And then he drives his car to the hospital uh, with a vial for Noel. Uh, so he he goes up to her room and he offers her the vial, which she doesn't want to take, but he convinces her to take it or half of it anyway. Um, stop listening to this boy, Noel. Yeah, not good. Yeah. Um, also, I just love your tweet here. Oh, no, don't take half. Definitely don't take half. All of her sucks. Don't give him any. Don't take half. 
Um, it just made me laugh. That was very stream of consciousness tweeting. Like I was typing that literally as I read. Um, and it's funny because like we took the little tiny beat to have Skidmark warn us very explicitly that when someone asks, can't we just split it up? And he's like, no, that would be really bad. Yeah, right. That's that's one of many moments that you really enjoy on read throughs. Yeah. So before we move on, I do want to stop here and talk about the vials for a bit, um, because we have we we know we have six for seven people. We realized that um, as soon as we found them, and we know that this this easily represents that choice that the whole arc started with, where we have five spots on this team and six people eligible for them. And it seems kind of obvious that we're going to leave Cody out in the cold again with this, because that just seems like it kind of it rhymes. Um, those two those two beats match each other kind of, but we don't do that. Um, we set up this choice to mirror that previous one and then we subvert it. Um, and, and this kind of makes me think that that decision to vote out Cody kind of pushed Noel. Noel, I don't think she was fully okay with that. Um, it makes me think that she was kind of pushed into that a little bit. So here, when she's given a similar option, um, she votes not to exclude anyone. She votes to take the risk onto herself by splitting this in half. And of course she has no way of knowing what the consequences of decision decision will be. Um, she, she does it anyway. And, and I think Wildbo by subverting our expectations here, he's taken a story to which we thought we already knew the ending and then he kind of tosses it all up into the air again. And and again, to hit my previous beat, this is this is how you make a prequel interesting. This is how you you take and you use information that people have to confuse and subvert their expectations. You think you know what the way things are going to go. You think you know how this is going to all play out, but you subvert that a little bit. Um, and it's really, really good. Yeah, I like this idea. You just you just pointed out that maybe no- Noel is like she's like kind of maybe inside herself is like, no, I've learned my lesson. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to exclude anyone, but she ends up making a much worse mistake in trying to avoid her previous mistake. Yeah. Yeah. And of course this all ends poetically with Krauss thinking to himself, I'll take the blame. I'm okay with being the bad guy. He thought just so long as you get to live. And of course, Noel does get to live. Um, and Kraus thinks he knows what the consequences here, just that him being the bad guy, everyone being mad at him. Um, but it's it's so much worse than that. Right. Yeah. He, he makes the sacrifice because he assumes it's his sacrifice to make. Yep. And it's not. So, yeah, we move into 17.7. And it's immediately obvious uh, that Noel's powers aren't taking hold as easily as Kraus's did. Uh, a guard tries to get into the room in response to her screams, and uh, the uniform eventually barges in, and Kraus is distracted by the trigger vision, um, which starts and stops erratically. We've never seen a trigger vision um, or, or trigger event drag on like this before. Yep, and there's a whole bunch of juicy information in this vision, but I'm done, Matt. It's all hallucinatory <laughs> nonsense, and I'm just going to wait until the story tells me what it is. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so Scott has to wrestle the much stronger PRT officer. Who's, no, I don't. Who's old... I don't have to wrestle it. <laughs> Let me try that again. Kraus has to wrestle the much stronger PRT officer who is armed and eventually figures out uh, the shape uh, doesn't matter to his power so much as the mass. So he switches the man's gun with Noel's blanket and he ends up holding the gun and then he uses it to violently bash the guy's face in. Yeah, I, I do really like these small beats of 
people figuring out their powers. Um, uh, Wild Bill writes them all very well, and I think the blanket gun moment is pretty great in that. There's also a lot of beats where Trickster like realizes he has to change his mass so he sucks in air or breathes out a bunch of air to get masses matching closer together. It's a pretty, pretty great touch. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense too. Air is kind of heavy, actually. Um, so eventually Noelle's trigger event completes, and she seems a bit better. Um, she feels her skin fizzing, but other than that, she can't tell if she has powers. Yeah, and we really start playing with uh, audience expectation here um, because we all know that whatever's wrong with Noelle, something is going to go wrong really soon. Um, we have no idea exactly how or when or in what way. Um, so we're just kind of waiting. So this causes us to like pay close attention to every little bit of information about what's happening to her. And so like fizzing skin. Oh God, what does that mean? And yeah. it's really cool. Right. And, and we still, we've never, we've never seen or, or given any understanding of what she becomes. So we're just like, okay, okay. Well, how does that relate to the, to the thing that we see later? Yeah. 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 So, so Krauss looks out the window and he sees Merton and his team and a ton of PRT troopers. Um, and he verifies that he can use his power on people outside the window by swapping a couple of random PRT guys. Uh, but Merton and his team quickly fly up to the window and smash through it. Yeah, I can't I can't help but think about those two PRT soldiers just hanging out on opposite sides of the parking lot only to find themselves magically in a different place for no reason. And like, yeah, it's like they don't even know what's going on at this point. No one's seen Trickster or his power, so they don't know what to expect. So can you imagine just like being at work and then you're across the office and yeah. you just don't know how that happened? Yeah, uh, poor guy. I was actually thinking about this when I was downtown today. I was like, that was Trickster, and I just wanted to like hop across the city real fast. I would leave a lot of really disoriented people behind <laughs> me. Yep. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, I liked this moment of uh, Merdin looked at Noel, then at Kraus. So there's two of you. One of us, two bodies. Kraus said, um, <laughs> "This is just so, so great. So, so Trickster." Yeah, it's it's total nonsense. And of course, I loved it because I immediately starting to like read stuff into it and like try to figure out what's he trying to say here. And I did this for like five minutes before I was just like, Scott, you got to stop. <laughs> this is just trickster being trickster. Yeah, I mean, it clearly works. on Uh Then uh, the other cape, one of the other capes anomaly tries to grab them with some kind of black hole suction power. But Krauss quickly turns the tables on them, um, swapping people strategically to use their own powers against them and, and move himself and Noel to the window. Um, so this results in Noel appearing to cut her hand on the broken glass. And once he can easily see out the window, he swaps himself and Noel outside, and then he swaps both of them into a police car, which they steal. So as they drive away, he realizes that Noel's hand is uninjured by the broken glass. Yeah, and like I said before, we're we're studying Noelle through every paragraph, every word, waiting for a hint of when she's going to go wrong. So yeah, we see this uninjured hand, and it stands out a lot to us. And we're we're like, okay, fizzy skin can't be hurt. What is going on? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they return to the rest of the group, and Luke is really angry at Kraus um, for what he's done, and he's he's kind of he's kind of done with Kraus's excuses and justifications. Yeah, I really like this because um, the thing we have to remember is that Luke defended Krauss when Cody went apeshit about destroying the vials. He said, I didn't like that he did it, but I like I understand his point. And here Krauss has basically just done the exact same thing that Cody wanted to do. He just 
decided on his own that he's going to drink this um, without consulting anyone else. And it's a betrayal. And I understand why Luke is so mad at him. And, and this kind of starts sowing those seeds that, that end their story with ballistic deciding to, uh, to leave his friends and say, I'm done with this. And, and in that moment with coil to walk over uh, to, to the undersiders side. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is kind of the moment where, where Luke, uh, starts to diverge from him and, and kind of almost not be his friend anymore. Yeah. And, and this and, and everything we're going to see from here on out in this chapter, I think really does show us, um, the, the, the two sides of the idea of fate and destiny, something we've been talking about a little bit before on the one side, you feel like you've lost all choice and all freedom that, that you are not responsible for your own life anymore. But on the other it's like a get out of jail free card. You get to justify everything you do as part of this just pre-written fate. And that's kind of what Kraus does here. Um, and, and that gets me thinking, maybe maybe that's the most dangerous part about the Seamurg. It's not just the power itself, but when you have this knowledge of of the existence of a fate-like thing in her presence, that that this linking of chains... Um, it, is is more freeing to make you think you can act in certain ways that you wouldn't before because you feel like well i'm i was always going to do this anyway yeah like is it is it better or worse to just surrender when you realize that you're like in 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 the grip of of a precog basically because because you're gonna do the thing they intend you to do one way or the other so it's a question of are you going to do kicking and screaming or are you just going to be resigned and uh i think different people might have different answers to that well and it's like it's like this it's such a complicated thing right because there's this this intersect of like even even with even with a precog even with knowledge of what happens does that by itself remove the choice um is is the simmer really basically controlling creating fate is she really forcing you into this certain path or is she just pushing things together and you still have the choices to make on your own and are you making those choices um consciously because you think you don't really have a choice even though you do like and it's really complicated and i like how we're we're kind of wrestling with this here yeah yeah totally yeah i mean on some level it comes down to like how strong she is which and we don't know at all how strong she is we're we're given to suspect that she's pretty good but you'd think that if she were like immaculately good then like there would be no limit to what she could do in in a sense right right yeah so uh so at this point cody enters swaggering and uh kraus is suddenly disoriented Uh, and it's interesting because as we begin to understand cody's power is quite different from kraus's but the impact on the target has got to feel similar. Everything shifts around you. You're disoriented. And in both cases, their powers can control and play with with people, people's bodies. Um, you could even say that they're both a form of teleportation even. Yeah, and, and Cody even confidently says that his is the perfect counter to Krause's, um, which is kind of true on a certain, in a certain way. Yeah. Um, then he says, the only bad part is... Um, shaking his hand as if it were sore. Uh, if I use it on myself, I don't get the satisfaction. And if I use it on him, he doesn't even know. Um, so, which, yeah, which is c- kind of a, like an ironic twist to Cody's power too, because he doesn't even get like what he wants out of it. Yeah. So, so Cody seems to tire of beating up time looped Kraus uh, after the others chastise him for it a bit. 
Uh, Noelle, though, is hungry, and Marissa, perplexed, leads her to the kitchen. Perplexed, eh? Almost as if... No, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait till my speculation. <laughs> so Cody resumes uh, messing with Krauss with his power again, and Krauss responds this time by immediately attacking Cody, realizing that he can perform the same attack on Cody over and over, because when Cody time loops himself, he forgets what he already tried. Um, and, and he says, your power works against you. Using it to protect yourself, it doesn't work if your opponent knows how you function, and you don't have a backup to break the loop. You shift yourself back in time, you don't remember, and I can use the same strategy over and over. Um, and, and yeah, that's true, Kraus. Um, but uh, Cody's power is actually really, really nice if he has backup, um, which he would have if he wasn't a jerk, um, ironically. Yeah, almost as if Kraus has like ideas and imagination and strategy when it comes to his power. And Cody uh, has like a, a, a pretty short ceiling. He can work hard at his power and, and get better and better, but he can't really think long term and strategic about it. Almost as if he's bad at video games. <laughs> yeah, that's that's I think that's a definite, definite parallel there. Yeah, so Kraus does cross a line here um, where he, he points out that now that Cody has a power, the only way that Kraus can really like win a fight with him is by killing him, um, which is a little bit chilling. Uh, so, so that theme of the traveler's powers all being too lethal is actually serving um, to, to kind of limit their options in, in, in another way here, maybe maybe a different slant than the one that we're used to seeing. Yeah, I like that. And and, and I really do think more than anything, it's just an excuse, but I, I do like it. Um it also helps to kind of set up this decision that Krauss is going to make later in the next chapter and how like casually he makes it. Um, and uh, so we're getting some, some clever setup here that Krauss is, is willing freely to cross this line if he feels like he has to. Yeah. So Krauss asks the others if they plan to take uh, Lyles to uh, Luke's think Luke thinks that he might as well now. And Krauss seems to convince Jess to do so by pointing out that it could potentially heal her. Yeah, let's just double down on the bad decisions here, guys. Let's totally forget about the reason we didn't want to take these in the first place, which was that they're all guided missiles, and now they'll be guided missiles with possibly their own guided missiles. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Uh, so Krauss seems to be totally convinced that he's the only one the Seamer was focusing on, um, and that he's the guided missile, as we talked about before. Um, and while this is obviously egocentric, um, I... I, th uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. I thought kind of while reading that this this made sense based on the information at his disposal. And, and I was interested that you kind of pushed back on that. And I, I kind of changed my mind. But but yeah, you, you go ahead. Yeah, I mean, well, first, we're getting our, our real moment of hubris here as if we're we're not banging that Greek tragedy drum enough um, that, that, that he, he makes it all about him. He's like egotistical here and, and uh, makes mistakes because he assumes that it's him. And yeah, like I, I did push back on you a little bit there because I, I just think he's making, he's jumping to conclusions and he's making connections that aren't necessarily there. Um, he's got a lot of assumptions. We haven't seen him talk to the rest of the team about what they were shown. Um, we don't know if Noel was shown anything, what she was shown. Um, and, and we have him making a lot of assumptions. I, I always assumed as soon as we figured out what the, the, the seamer was doing, that, their end target, the end missile, was always get Noel to turn into monster thing. Yeah, you're definitely right about that. I, I guess more what I was saying is like, this trickster thinking that it's all about him 
makes makes sense in his head because nothing like there's been no overt sign that anything is going to be up with Noel at this point. So, so as far as he knows, it, it was focused on him. But like I said, he was a guided missile aimed at getting her to take the vial, which now his role is while not done, you know, he accomplished kind of the, the critical point that he needed to accomplish. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think that's fair. I, I, I think now that I understand what you meant a little better that, yeah, I mean, he, in in the immediate aftermath, he seemingly like is justified in, in having that opinion. I guess, yeah, yeah. But I, but I, I it, think it's still, I think he, it's still hubris, though. You're right yeah, about that. Yeah, yeah. So so we cut forward a bit um, to the group driving away from Madison, having teleported past the fence. Um, the powers are a disappointment all around. Jeff can't walk. Luke can't fly. Marissa can't do much of anything yet. Um, but later, as we'll see, Sundancer is pure destruction. And Oliver, Oliver's power isn't obvious yet either. Yeah, almost as if they just drank these powers that weren't really meant for them and they weren't psychologically, like, prepared for them. Um, yeah. They, they kind of, like, like it's, it's funny how we know how dangerous this whole thing was, like how often monsters are made from this, like how important, like, being psychologically steady is ready, how many tests go on, how they, like, align the power to the person um so it's not surprising here that things don't work out the way people wanted them to yeah exactly um and and yet also the we did we did kind of get the moment where this was like a case full of kind of the most high dollar vials that cauldron makes so they do get really strong powers and everyone is always commenting on like well the travelers are an unusually strong group um um but but like you said they're they're very strong they're very, they're very strong, but but kind of, um, yeah. As we've said many times, violent and, and one dimensional in, in in some ways. Yeah, yeah. So they pull over at a rest stop, and inside, Noelle takes off her pants to go to the bathroom and finds a strange mark on her leg. Beneath the angry red skin on Noelle's thigh, there was an eyeball, twice the normal size, with a broad yellow iris. Noelle's hands were clenched into fists, gripping the cloth of her jeans as the eyes gaze darted from one member of their group to another. It's settled on Kraus. Accusatory. <laughs> I love this so much. <laughs> this is awesome. The leg eyeball looked at him accusatory. Yeah. How poetic. Uh, I love it. I know. I love I know. it. This, there's, there's, I mean, it's funny. Like, I haven't actually read that much Stephen King, but a lot of the stuff strikes me as, as Stephen King like in the best way. I don't know if you agree. You're, you're more of a Stephen as King. As the resident uh, Daily Planet production Stephen King expert. Yes, yes, okay. very much so. Yeah. All right, so we move into 17.8, and we've skipped forward in time somewhat significantly, and now we're with Trickster, no longer Kraus. Um, Trickster. Yeah, so before we go on, I wanted to talk about this time jump really quick and how jumping time in general is a very clever way of, again, masking stuff that we don't want the audience to see yet. Um, because we, we we see the start of Noel, but Wild Bill wants to hold on to that full reveal until the very end of the chapter. He wants it to end on this this beat of fully realizing what Noel is now. So he holds and he holds and he holds on to it until that end. And this time jump kind of makes that possible. So it's, it's a very clever way of getting around um, the problem that we talk about a lot on here, which is how do you how do you successfully reveal things in ways that feel organic and natural and not that you're just doing it for the sake of the story? Yeah, um, I, I also think that the, the time jump serves some other purposes. Like, for example, the trickster we see here, he, he behaves a lot more 
like the trickster that we know. Um, this is like a, a bridge between this this kid who we've come to know and 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 the the kind of the kind of um, dangerous and and ruthless leader of the travelers who we know in the main storyline. Because um, he's definitely he's definitely turned t- turned into that person by this point, and we see yeah. how that happened. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, he he's waiting uh, in an office or in, in, a, in a yeah, I guess an office to to meet with a supervillain called Accord, and he smokes while looking out onto the Boston of Earth Bet. And for a few moments, we see this world almost for the first time. Um, there's there's quite a bit of description. I like it, but the the point here, uh, how I just put it, this world was sublime, a world that was awesome in the truer sense of the word, greater in so many respects. In a metaphorical sense, the peaks were higher, the valleys lower, works of art more artful, extremes more extreme. It wasn't a good thing. Make the mountains twice as tall and the chasms twice as deep, and things start crumbling. So we've had descriptions of Broxton Bay. Uh, before, obviously, uh, but it's so powerful at this moment in the story to get this sense of contrast. This world, this this whole world is not normal. Yeah, and it's because here for the first time in this whole book, we're seeing it from the point of view of someone who does not belong here. Um, and it, it, you're right, it's it's wonderful. I'm glad you pulled out this this verbiage because it is it is poetic. It's make the mountains twice as as tall and the chasms twice as deep, and things start crumbling. That's wonderful imagery and it's it's this this world is awful it's terrible yeah. <laughs> yeah it's crumbling yeah so the the villain accord invites him in so let's do name games got accord uh most obviously as we'll see to be harmonious or consistent with uh, but also to give or grant someone a thing be it power status or recognition so perhaps also this usage is applicable in this situation yeah. because they're they're asking him to accord them recognition and status. Um, also, as a noun, accord is an official agreement or treaty, and an agreement is what they're asking for here. Uh, yeah, uh, trickster is almost the opposite in connotation. Tricksters cause chaos and discord. Yeah, it's it's almost kind of surprising that accord would even like tolerate this guy being here based off of just his name yeah it, it it does turn out through their conversation that accord kind of likes him um yeah so that's that's good for him i guess so yeah that like <laughs> as we begin to see everything accord does is precise almost artistic and perfect down to the tiniest details so it turns out this is this is accord's territory so trickster is asking for permission to commit some crimes uh, and it's all very, very civilized. Trickster will pay a fee and a percentage of the take. Um, but Accord makes a counteroffer. He doesn't much care for Trickster's offer. Uh, he wants the travelers to steal some tinker equipment from the biotinker Blasto. <laughs> <laughs> Tinkers are so bad at their names. I know. Um, so Accord, though, will sweeten the deal with the payment uh, and will also create some costumes for the travelers as part of the payment. Uh, which Trickster suspects is really just Accord kind of wanting to like impose order on the world and make things neater. Um, and then and he, he thinks uh, Accord was a thinker and the running theory on his power was that he got naturally smarter as the problems he was addressing got more complex. It gave him an intuitive understanding of groupthink, politics, and convoluted designs. Yeah, Accord's a really interesting character to me. And especially like as he represents like we just got this whole passage about how the world was crumbling, how 
like that that things weren't normal and everything was kind of falling apart and, and this this really interesting observation by Krauss. And then we have this character in Accord who like is seemingly like obsessed with order and and normalcy and, and calmness. And he's living in this world that is falling apart. And it's it's very like I like that contrast. Yeah, totally. Yeah. There's another thing about about the situation that I want to draw attention to, which is that like so so in Brockton Bay, the the guy who the guy who steadily took control of, of the city um um was basically you'd classify him as a thinker, I'm pretty sure. I, I think you classify precogs as thinkers. Um mm-hmm. and and of course the girl who defeats him and kind of at least for the moment has taken over his empire was also a thinker, and I'm talking about Tattletale here. Um and of course, the guy who it seems is in charge of the Boston uh, villain cape scene uh, is a thinker. So I, I like I like this. This is something that I've heard people say is like their favorite thing about Worm is like, well, of course, if you have cognitive powers, those are going to be those are going to like put you in a better position than than strength or whatever. And 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 I like this this observation that yeah. that Accord is is in this position of power here. Yeah. So in the middle of their meeting, though, Sundancer barges in uh, with an emergency. Trickster kicks her out and tries to calm down Accord, uh, who rescinds all of the goodies that came with the offer and adds that Sundancer will now have to die uh, because she's a force of disorder, he says, and Trickster is better off rid of her. Uh, Trickster bargains that Sundancer can show herself to be a force of order, and Accord gives her 10 minutes to prepare to do so. Yeah, so I had to reread this part several times because the first time i read it i really really didn't like it it felt so weird and like so out of left field so like comic book villainy that i almost felt like i was not reading worm anymore that i was reading another book the idea that barging into someone's office being met with like immediate death was so illogical like 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 a bad guy in a James Bond flick or something. Like, why would you ever want to work for someone who could be set off this easily? He'd just be killing people constantly. But okay. But before everyone jumps down my back, <laughs> I read it a few more times and I kind of like it more now. Um, as we were talking about before, Accord represents order in this world that's like succumbing to chaos. And, and, and because of the world that Earthbed is, he really can't afford to be flexible if he wants to try to maintain order and then plus that combined which is the fact that he has this thinker superpower means that even if he is killing subordinates on daily basis um he still has this power to amass power like power and and wealth anyway so this isn't just blofeld this is uh, blofeld with superpowers so um i'm fine with it yeah right i mean and i think one one thing one kind of lens that i take on it is is that like lung was also kind of this like wasteful kind of monster in terms of how he was a how he was a leader he led through he led through violence people people followed him out of fear and and we don't we don't know this but it could just be the case that that all of this like civility and 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 a feetness that's apparent in uh in accord is actually just just a mask and, and he's just as much an animal as as lung is um yeah yeah but i don't know we don't really know that it's just like I, yeah it's and just like yeah it just like it just hit like i was just like what like that's so crazy like even for yeah. the, the crazy shit that happens in this book this is so crazy yeah i think i think i i had a reaction at that moment of like 
just just one thing after another for these guys. Like <laughs> now they have to deal with this. Um, but I mean, they, they they deal with with this issue relatively quickly, and it all kind of works out. Yeah, though. yeah. So yeah, um, Trickster races outside and tells tells Sundancer what she has to do. She has to spruce herself up, and then perform a ballet, uh, a, a ballet routine for him that she can do well. Yeah. It- <laughs> Of course it's something the solution to this ridiculous problem is something equally ridiculous like he's he's gonna murder you because you barged in on his meeting so do a dance for him and then he'll be okay yeah right um go ahead sorry yeah so so yeah only after communicating this to her does he finally worry about whatever the emergency was he calls oliver and learns that cody touched noel three times which is apparently terrifying uh, but we don't know why. Oh no, touching. That's bad. Noel yeah. Noel never liked to be touched, Matt. Remember? Yeah. She never yeah. liked it. I hope that her power didn't turn that into some kind of horrifying consequence. No. So Trickster immediately starts searching for something, um, kind of swapping himself willy-nilly everywhere. Uh, and then he finds it. It's a naked, monstrous dude covered in tumorous growths, attacking anyone he runs into. And it's it's Cody. It's it's perdition, but not quite. So Trickster saves a couple of children by getting the monster's attention. And we, we do see that even though this isn't really Cody, as we'll see later, it still hates Krauss personally. Yeah, hey, Matt, uh, uh, perdition is defined as a state of eternal punishment and damnation. Names. Yeah. Yep. Poor, poor Cody. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, uh, as Trickster's kind of thinking through, he's thinking some of the time the powers would be different. Most of the time, going by precedent, they were stronger. Trickster was left to wonder how Perdition's powers had changed duration, range, the amount of time reversed. Um, and it, eventually he figures it out that it's basically that this version of Perdition doesn't need to see the target. He just kind of gets a lock on his target. So Trickster escapes this ultimately by doing some rapid sequence of swaps and then getting the drop on the creature and emptying a magazine into him. So yeah, at this point, I didn't know whether I didn't know that this was a copy and just thought it was like touching Noel mutates you weirdly. And then I was like, oh, shit. I was like, no, he killed him way too casually. And that's when I started saying, all right, this must be a copy. Um, and, and and of course, as you learn this in the back of your mind is the fact that uh, Noel is, is out right now rampaging through the streets of Brockton Bay and anyone that fights her and touches her um, will have a version of themselves to deal with, which is insane. Yeah, but luckily there aren't a lot of strong capes in Brockton Bay. No. No. Um, yeah, so we, we skip forward and Trickster drags the body into the traveler's uh, apartment or house or whatever it is uh, where it joins two others. Um. Yeah, so so there's this moment here where where Krauss is like thinking things over, and he's thinking they'd all been forced to deal with their individual tragedies. Noel's went without saying. Jess hadn't gotten to walk. Luke hadn't gotten to fly. Oliver got a physical and mental overhaul without any fixes for the real problems. And Marissa had been thrust into the situation she'd fought so hard to escape, where she was forced to pursue a life she didn't want. Um, and I just wanted to bring this out because um, I know you you thought it was kind of like on the nose um, in terms of like verbalizing and making explicit uh, kind of the 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 themes of the arc i guess um so i just wanted to to get your get your reaction there yeah so that was my immediate reaction was oh trickster's nicely summing up the themes of the arc for us in a very very explicit manner but then you know i read it again as i was studying the arc and 
and it's it's not that at all because trickster is so wrong here <laughs> like jess's tragedy in this moment is that she can't walk well no it's that she's stuck on in this this other place and she's alone like she could never walk luke that he can't fly that was just like a casual thing that he thought about but hey it'd be fun if i could fly like does and then like does oliver even consider the things that kraus thinks are his problems to be his problems like we we see so little of oliver that we don't know if any of that's actually true like i think the closest he gets is marissa's but like he he's wrong like here he's totally wrong and it's like it's like he's so focused on Noel that he can't even see that really that he's still thinking about it's just like oh it's just Jess wanting to get walk it's just Luke wanting to fly and he he doesn't see it yeah and and I'm just noticing right now that although maybe you maybe you can't blame him at this moment but he doesn't even include Cody in his list yeah of yeah. of people who have had tragedies and of course Cody has experienced a tragedy too he's being a he's he's reacting to it horribly but he's experienced a tragedy just as much as any of the rest of them have. Right. But, but he's just like not even human to Krause at this point. Yeah. So um, we, we learned from their dialogue that there have been a number of incidents like this one and, and, and the body count associated with, with each of them. Yeah. And this is the reason why the travelers are, are, are traveling around the, the country because they can't stay in a place for too long because incidents like this keep happening and they have to flee somewhere else. Yep. So Marissa returns, uh, Accord having decided that she was at least trying to be orderly and deciding not to kill her. Um, but Accord is demanding that they turn over the real culprit behind the interruption, and he means Cody. Uh, and Krauss is pretty okay with that, actually, at this point, even though he's breaking the promise that they all rely on, the things that keeps the group together. Yeah, it's such a casually made decision that, like, we're going to have to give him up today. Oh, well. Um, and it and it echoes back to Cody's accusation earlier in, in the arc, right? That that Kraus would be willing to put one or all of them in danger if it meant saving Noel, and and he absolutely would do that with Cody. Um, I think he's expanded his definition of who he's willing to protect a little bit, a little bit here for, to include the rest of the travelers. But but I I still think really it's just all about Noel. But but anyway, very clear that Cody's not part of that. He's he's just completely fine. Uh, sentencing him to death here. Yeah, right. And this this shows that ruthlessness that we've come to to see in in Trickster. Yeah, yeah. And I gotta say, at first I, w- I was very surprised that we don't get to see what happens to Cody. We end this arc before really seeing um, what they do with Cody. All we know is that he's not with the group anymore. Um, because it's the conflict between Cody and Kraus that kind of spurs on the arc. It's the, the first thing we started with. It's what we ca- carried through the entire arc. And we don't ever really get to see that kind of resolution. Um, and, th- and that's what I was thinking at first. But then the more I thought about it, like the fact that we don't see Cody at all in this chapter, that he's just not present in this chapter outside of a mutated weird monster thing is kind of a resolution on its own because um, Cody was kicked out of the group at the beginning of the arc. And here at the end of the arc, we see that this action carried over, that he is not part of this team, that he possibly never was. And that on its own is, is, is a form of resolution. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't think that he's missing from this, from this chapter. I think it's, I think it's, it's appropriate. He's not here because we already, we already finished his, you know, his arc with Krauss. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, so Kraus sends Marissa to go get a ton of meat for Noel, um, but first she hands him a phone number, 
that she got from Accord, and he calls, and it's Coil um, making them the offer and bringing everything closer to alignment with the present day. And really, we understand everything now. Coil promises employment. He promises to send them home to Earth Aleph. He promises to fix Noel, or at least to try his best. And he promises them a causal shield from the Seamurg's influence. Yeah, I really like seeing this all come full circle and seeing Coil position himself here. Um, I, I know you can't answer this completely, Matt, but is what Coil is saying here true? Or like, as far as the ability of of other th- thinkers to mask the cause and effect nature of of uh, this the Seamer, like, is this true or is this just him bullshitting to try to influence them? Um, have we seen like a confirmation that this actually works this way? Yeah, I don't. Um, I don't think we have seen a confirmation. Um, the closest, I don't know. I'm kind of grasping at straws, at straws here. <laughs> I know it's, no, it's no, tough to say without yeah, spoiling well, anything. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess like, um, yeah, I don't even. I, I, I think this just. I think that may even just be an open question. I, I don't know. Um, because because it there almost has to be like a. A hierarchy it's like in, in a in a world like this you know you either have a power hierarchy of precogs where some of them are just strictly better than others um and and like if if precog a makes a prediction precog b can't do anything to to change that even though they can see the future too um and precog a is stronger than precog b or you have a situation where they're all of similar level of power so if two of them try to like game the same situation and they just mess each other up um and we don't know we don't know which of those worlds we're in right now does that make sense yeah yeah i think so okay um yeah so so finally trickster visits noelle and we don't get to see her at first uh we just see that the room is completely trashed and uh she laments that she thinks she's becoming an inbringer scott was right boom got it <laughs> um, no, she just thinks we don't actually yeah, she know that. Yeah. Who knows, though? So uh, he tells her uh, what Coil offered, and after arcs and arcs of buildup, we finally see Noelle. From the waist up, it's Noelle. From the waist down, she's a giant monster of twisted flesh with animal heads jutting from it in multiple limbs, hooves, hands, tentacles. She doesn't expel waste. She only adds the mass of what she eats to herself, and she's always hungry. And if she doesn't eat, she goes on a rampage. Yeah, uh wow, I I got to say I was a uh, I was expecting things not to look quite like this. Um I, I even kind of have a, a a difficulty picturing exactly what this looks like. Um I'm just kind of imagining like normal top crazy final fantasy end boss bottom and I, I feel like I feel like that's enough for now. Yeah, that's kind of I mean if if I actually like render it in my head I'm almost just seeing like a massive like slimy shapes underneath her because they don't have the compute power to render all those individual limbs in my yeah. head. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so having told her this good news that Coral is going to save them, uh, we skip forward again and now suddenly trickster is waking up on the beach and he finds the spot where the seagulls have clustered the red stain on the pavement Another wave crashed against the beach. He heard the seagulls calling angrily, wanting the morsels that littered the ground in front of him. 
Kraus spent a very long time staring at the stain. Hey, Matt. Uh-huh. There's birds. You see the birds? Oh. Is it uh, white, white flapping wings, just yeah. like the cockatoo? Yeah, and the... just some white, some white flapping wings. Yeah. No, and this is like, I think this is so important. And, and, you know, we talk about three beats a lot, and I think we try to stretch them in some ways when we're trying to look for them when they might not necessarily be there. But this feels intentional. This specific bird image we're seeing repeated again and again and again throughout this arc. And here it comes full circle at the end where we see Coil's dead. Um, their hope, the traveler's hope is gone and Noel is loose. And now... Um, this is it this is this is where everything was was leading this is where the seamurg's plan was going the entire time and as if to say that yes that is exactly what's going on here's another bird to confirm that yeah and and not just not just a bird sitting on a fence but a bird the birds fighting over eating coils like brain yeah 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 and i think it's it's too much of a stretch to say that the seamurg was influencing taylor's decisions to do this i i don't think that's true i think uh she was just able to see this and able to manipulate the travelers in a way to get them to this point um for for that decision on her own like i don't want i don't want to go i don't want to stretch that out so far and and take away taylor's agency through all this but um, yeah yeah, this was this is definitely an intentional callback to the bird imagery um, to show us that, yes, here it is. Here was the thing that here was the, the guided missile that you were trying to avoid all this time. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah, I, I think you're right about that. I think I think that, the, the, you know, we're, we're told the Simmer sees the future and she doesn't if something was going to happen anyway, she doesn't need to make a Rubik's machine to, to cause it to happen. So, yeah. 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 And man, like, <laughs> I love this arc so much. Like we talked about some little nitpicky things that I didn't like Matt, but there's so much here. And, and I don't like, we could, I feel like we just touched the surface. Like, I feel like there's so much more we could get into. There's so much more I could talk about uh, as far as what I think the scenery can represent from like a meta textual type of way. Um, but the point being that I think this was this was a mastercraft in a little mini story that still manages to tie into our overall story. Um, and, and you feel like suddenly, you know, these travelers so much and, and we're about to have this this big, huge battle um, that seems to be set up now. But but now we we understand the stakes more than we ever have. Yeah, I, I it's it's funny, like we we just spent a long time going into quite a bit of detail and yet I, I agree with you with the feeling that there's so much more to say here. Um, and, and I think it's, I think it's the, the ultimate thing about it is like, even though I just read this like three times in a row, basically, and, and wrote a detailed <laughs> synopsis, I kind of want to go back through it and look at certain specific things based on this discussion that we've had. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it just kind of indicates the richness of what we're talking about. Yeah, and I guess we should say here that these all came out what one a day for yeah. a week or something. That this was one, another one of the yeah. ridiculous speed writing sessions that Wild Bo went through, um, yeah. which is just insane to me. Yeah, um, I, I know it's it's amazing. It's really amazing. All right, well, Scott, we learned a lot. We learned a lot about a lot of a lot of stuff happened that we've been waiting to happen. So, so let's get into the Scott speculations. 
All right, so let's first go through some of those old ones. Um, I said that Noel is the result of Cauldron tinkering to try to create an Endbringer. This was wrong. Uh, Noel thinks she might be turning into an Endbringer, but we have no actual conversation for that, and it was definitely not directly because of Cauldron uh, experimenting or anything. So that was wrong. Um, number two, I said Genesis was a Cauldron Vile Cape. That is correct. They all, yep. they all were. Um, this, if you remember, was because of little indications that uh, her power seems similar to Siberian's and we had confirmation that Siberian was. So I made a mental leap there and ended up being correct. Um, and then later, as we learned more, I had decided that number three, the travelers are all cauldron capes and that Noel is the result of a faulty uh, or bad vial. Um, and it was trickster's idea to get the vials. Um, I'm going to give myself a correct on this one. It didn't quite go the way i thought it was but uh i think faulty and and half are similar um yeah and yeah. and it was it was trickster trickster did find the vials he brought them back it was his idea to give the one to noel so yeah let's uh let's say that that's a yes yeah i mean it it, it does make me wonder what influence like like obviously noel's in in bad shape it makes me wonder if if she'd had the full vial, would she still have had like a, a bad reaction powers wise? Yeah. Um, yeah. But... I really wonder about that because we see Oliver, um, not have a bad reaction. Just, he kind of has what, what, uh, what trickster was thinking was that it was just a weak, not very useful power. Um, but on, on Noel's side, it was not, um, yeah. So yeah. that's, that's very curious. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and what do you have for us, uh, for new predictions? All right. So number one, um, Trickster's tale lines up so much with a, a, a traditional Greek tragic story um, that I'm going to say this will be a Greek tragic story that our pal Trickster does not survive. I believe he will end up dead, and I will, he believe he will end up dead at the hands of Noel um, in, in true tragic story fashion. Okay. So that's just me using ancient story tropes to predict the future, and we'll see if I'm right. Um, and then number two, so this is kind of what we've been teasing the entire episode, that there's clearly something wrong with Noelle. She clearly has some sort of uh, physical or mental disorder. Um, I think it's been reinforced quite a lot here that it is some sort of eating disorder. Um, that's my formal prediction. Um, I'm going to guess anorexia at this point because um, we don't see her like we don't see her binge or anything like that. We just see her like there's really weird beats. Like we know Marissa knows about this and there's this beat where Marissa, where we're in the flashback and Marissa sits down at a table next to her and like takes her pizza and puts it on, um, on Noelle's plate who like then picks at a piece of the crust and there's like these little tiny things. And then we talk about how, um, how surprised Marissa is when she says she's hungry and she wants to eat. And then of course, just the idea that, uh, her powers are seemingly reflectant of the things that she's so self-conscious about. So she, she feels the need to constantly eat. And when she does starve herself is when she rampages and then her, her insecurity allows her to not want to be touched. And of course that's represented in terrible things happen when you touch her. So uh, that's that guess. I don't know, Scott, that's all pretty thin. Um, <laughs> I just talked for five minutes. How's that thin? Uh, I don't oh, know, Scott. That, well, I guess we'll see. Was that an anorexia joke when you thin? No, that's, that's God, important. It wasn't. That's oh my in, God, that's in poor taste, Matt. That's, that's terrible. That was not intended. Oh no. <laughs> oh no. Uh, we obviously did not mean that. Um, we yeah. recognize that these are very serious disorders that need to be taken seriously. There's a movie on Netflix, uh, To the Bone, that's actually pretty good. 
It's about a, a girl suffering from an eating disorder. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I feel terrible now. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. Um, yeah. Good prediction, Scott. Um, yeah, and and that will that will wrap up our coverage of Arc Seventeen. Good, because we are running late, so late. I think we are. Um, I hope everyone enjoyed our discussion, nonetheless, and hearing Scott's reactions. As always, we appreciate your feedback, and we're always trying to improve. So let us know if you have any advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's episode. Yeah, you can reach us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod. Twitter is also where I do my weekly live tweets of each arc as I read them. Um, my personal Twitter is at scottdale85 and Matt's is at mordinamail. We're so late, I'm not even going to make a joke there. <laughs> if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Worm, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on all podcast platforms. All of them. Yep. Uh, and as always you can all find this all the other podcasts we do and all of our writing essays film and tv criticism and more at dailyplanetfilms.com we also have a patreon page patreon.com slash dailyplanetfilms that's d-a-l-y uh, if you like what we do here and want to help make sure that we keep doing more of it consider donating a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford a special thanks to new associate producer uh Kitchikot and new producer uh tf fan one two three we have published the poll to choose from three submitted artworks for our fan art contest. The vote will be open from now until next week's episode. So if you are a patron, vote now. Uh, if you're not, well, patreon.com says Daily Planet Films. Scott, mental note, published that poll. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But that is right. Uh, also, we recently hit our next Patreon goal. Um, we mentioned it last week, and then you guys made it happen. Thank you so much. So that means that the Daily Planet Book Club is happening. Voting is now open for August's book. We've only had about half of our patrons vote at this point. So, uh, so guys, get in there and make your voice heard. Um, please note that while voting for this book is restricted to just patrons, that's a, a benefit for our patrons, um, the book club itself will be open to everyone. So uh, we close the vote on Friday and uh, and we'll announce the book and then we'll give everyone plenty of time to read the book along with us if you want and then we'll meet near the end of the month and uh, matt and i will have a discussion and we'll take your guys questions and it's going to be really fun um i'm so looking forward to this happening and, and i really thank you guys for for helping make this happen yeah we really enjoy this um and of course while you're over there at patreon make sure you stop by wildo's page and toss some money his way because he's the guy that makes this whole thing possible and as always, if you are one of those that can't spare any extra cash, we do completely understand, but there are still tons of ways to help us out. You can share a podcast with friends and family and those people you went to high school with, uh, but added you on Facebook for some weird reason, even though you haven't talked to them for like 10 years. That's right. Send a link to your own personal Cody. <laughs> and if you listen on iTunes, please, please, please take a quick second to rate and review us. It really does help. This week's spotlight reviewer is Seaguest7, who gives us five stars and says, It's not that I needed an excuse to reread Worm, but I might as well. Short and sweet, but awesome. Thank you, Seaguest. I'm glad that we encourage you to start another reread. It's weird. I think when I finish this, I might read it again. Yeah yeah um all right um that's it for us this week next week we finally get to cover one whole um no, we didn't update this part of the script yeah. oh. all right <laughs> let me try that again <clears throat> um let me try that again all right that's it for us this week uh next week um we will be covering arc 18 queen scott judging by the arc title what do you think this one is about well matt we will only be covering the first half of arc 18 queen because this that's arc right. is a billion words long like the last one um we have not 
set up the designation yet. Uh, we'll we'll announce that on Twitter when we decide what we're re- what we're reading to. Um, but my guess is this that we will see Queen Taylor, ruler of all Brockton Bay. Um, but seriously, my guess is that Noelle is going to be something of a queen herself, ruling over a bunch of terrible clones of everyone when they touch her, and then she's going to attack the whole city, and and perhaps we'll have the two queens uh, of Brockton Bay fighting over each other in Taylor and Noelle. Um, either way, I am in for this. I am very excited to see. We've we've got the backstory. We've got all the pieces in place, and and it's action time, man. Yeah, speaking of pieces, the travelers are fond of their chess metaphors. Yeah. And, uh, queen would be one of them um yeah that's clever but anyway we'll find out next week on we've got worm matt when people said go ahead and take three hours i was like don't be ridiculous we're not gonna (laughs) I'm going to take three hours. Yeah, I think (laughs) we did. I think 